Midnight Owl Live, the show for PC users who can handle the truth. And now, here's your host, Gene Steinberg. This week on the Tech Night Out Live, we'll hear from Kirk McElhern, author and commentator about 10 years of the iPod. Lex Friedman from Macworld Magazine will catch us up on the latest and greatest Apple news. And we have a special guest, Bob Carter, the legendary audio engineer. We'll talk about the history of home audio and how it stacks up today. All this and more on the Tech Night Out Live. So let me tell you and our guest, Kirk McElhern, a story. And the story goes back to the 1990s when a really smart programmer named Jeffrey Robin is working for Apple. He's one of the coders on the Copeland Project. Now, those of you who don't remember, Copeland was Apple's early effort to develop an industrial strength operating system. Failed. Long and short Never got it, off the ground, let's be frank. They tried. Barely got into the beta stage before Apple pulled the plug. And later, of course, they acquired the next operating system and Steve Jobs, and that's another story. Anyway, so Jeff Robbins back as a civilian, and he developed a series of products called Conflict Catcher and other innovative utilities for a small publisher called Cassidy and Green. Now, Conflict Catcher was one of these utilities that help you manage your system extensions in the old Mac OS. Really, really nifty. Unfortunately, it was an essential tool because of what was known back then as extension conflicts with system extensions. Right. These little add-ons that add code to the system. If you did something wrong, they can cause your Mac to crash or weird behavior of all sorts. You know, this is the old Mac OS, really buggy. You think that Mac OS X is buggy, the original Mac OS was 100 times buggier. Okay, so Jeff asked his beta testers, of which I was one, what features would you like to see? So I thought about it, and I sent him an email with a full list of five or ten different features, every one of which he added within about two weeks. Smart guy. Segway to a game he co-authored for Cassidy and Green called Spaceways 2000. So my son, a teenager at the time, was playing the game, ran into trouble, so I wrote Jeff a letter. He called me up, spent about two hours on the phone with my son Grayson to help him through the game. Real gentleman. Then he was part of a project to build an MP3 player called Sound Jam. Now, Sound Jam was, in the year 2000, acquired by Apple. Jeff Robin was hired, went back to Apple to work on Sound Jam, renamed iTunes. iTunes. That's right. Now, Jeff today, by the way, is a vice president of software engineering. And according to published reports, he is shepherding this new project by Apple, alleged project, not confirmed, to build a connected television set sometime for release next year or the year after. If it happens, supposedly Jeff will be involved. Okay. Jeff was also one of the creators of the iPod, which is now 10 years old. Tell us, Kirk McElhern, about the iPod. Well... Everyone knows about the iPod, but 10 years ago, on October 23, 2001, when it was first presented, no one really knew where this was going to go. It was sort of Apple's first foray into consumer devices. You and I remember that Apple had digital cameras and a game console and other things back in the day. The iPod was in certain ways revolutionary, but in more ways evolutionary, because it was building on existing MP3 players. At the time, an MP3 player was pretty much like a USB stick today. 
it had all of the constraints of USB, the slow transfer onto USB, the slow transfer speed of flash memory at the time. And one of the big selling points of the iPod was that it used FireWire to sync. And in Apple's original press release, an original presentation, they said that you could download an entire CD onto the iPod in less than 10 seconds and a thousand songs in less than 10 minutes. And that, they said, was 30 times faster than USB-based players. The iPod, when it first came out, was Mac only. And a lot of people may not remember that. And it wasn't for maybe four, five, six months uh, until there was a Windows version. And, and let me add some complexities to this. According to the biography of Steve Jobs by Walter Isaacson, Steve Jobs actually opposed having a Windows version and had to be persuaded by his crew, believe it or not. I haven't gotten to that chapter of the book yet. Okay. There you go. Fair you enough. You spoiled it for me. Wow. It's been publicized already online. I know, I know. It's not surprising. But in fact, that was one of the best decisions Apple ever made, was to get the Windows world familiar with Apple, quote-unquote, stuff. You know, getting them familiar with the iPod was the first step to getting them familiar with the concept of Apple as a company that didn't make computers that they knew about. So one of the big advantages of the iPod was the integration with iTunes. Other devices worked pretty much the way you use a USB stick today. You drag and drop files onto them. These devices would read the file system to play back the music. So the, the structure of your folders and files on the device would be the way that your files, your songs and all that would show up on the device, on the little screen on the device. Whereas with iTunes, you first of all used it to rip your music, second of all used it to organize your music, and third of all clicked on a button to sync to the iPod. So all of this became transparent to the user. People no longer had to root through their files and folders to find what they were listening to. iTunes did all of it. And of course, we all know now how successful it was, how successful it's been over the years. Interestingly, iPod sales have plateaued and have started to drop. But if you offset this with the iPhone and iPad, then it's still going up. In other words, people who are buying an iPhone probably don't buy an iPod anymore because they use their iPhone to listen to music, too. So in broad technicalities, an iPhone is in part an iPod, so is an iPad. Right. If you were to add up all of the iOS devices that can play music, you would see a strong upward curve. But if you just look at iPod unit sales, you see a slowly decreasing curve. Okay, so the one that focuses strictly on the music, that's kind of fading, although a lot are still being sold. Fading in as much as Apple still has 65 or 70% of the market. So if they're fading, everybody else is fading more. But these days we listen to music on our iPhones on our iPads. Go on, please. Right. And so over the years, the iPod obviously expanded from the initial device with the scroll wheel and the buttons around it. And then the next one that came out that had no buttons around the scroll wheel, but four buttons above it. And then the click wheel, you know, being refined. And then the new additions to the iPod family. Apple over the years managed to maintain a certain amount of newness each year with new iPod models. I mean, the first one was just black and white, played only music. And then later we got color screens, we got photos and then videos, and then they added podcasts. And then, of course, the iPod Touch came out with iOS. But on iPods only, there were a variety of sizes. I remember early 2004, I was working on 
the first book I wrote about the iPod, and it was just about that time that the iPod Mini came out. And this device was so popular, I think it sold out in the U.S. in three days. And they had to delay international launch for like three or four months because it was just incredibly popular. Now, what was the big deal? It was a little bit smaller, a little bit thinner, a little bit cheaper. It wasn't anything like the, the slim iPod Nanos that we've seen over the years. But it showed that already – this was the turning point for the iPod, late 2003 – early 2004, when it started really getting popular, and it showed just how much people wanted small devices, even smaller than the deck of cards-sized iPod, the original iPod, which is roughly the size of the iPod Classic. I'm looking at my iPod Classic now. The original iPod was not that much bigger. In terms of height and width, a tiny bit bigger. In terms of thickness, it was definitely a fair amount thicker, but it's pretty much the same there's a there's a clear descendence from the original iPod to today's iPod Classic. As a matter of fact, it's strange enough. Everybody said the iPod Classic will go away, but Apple hasn't changed it, but they're still selling it. They're still selling it, and I, I wrote something about this recently for Macworld because we had all been speculating whether – in you know Apple's latest event, whether they would get rid of the iPod Classic. This is the second year in a row that they didn't even mention it in their event when they show on the screen the different iPod models, yet it's still being sold. Um, the iPod Classic is for people, I have to say like me, who have very big music libraries and who want to put as much music as possible onto a device, who don't necessarily care about games. Um, to be honest, I have an iPod Touch as well, so I've got all the apps. But it's the one that holds 160 gigs of music for the price of, what, a 32-gig iPod Touch. We have Kirk McElhern, author and commentator. We'll have lots more. You're in the Tech Night Owl Live. Hey, folks, in today's fast-paced work environment, getting everyone in the same room for a meeting can be challenging, especially when they work in different locations. And that's why I use GoToMeeting with HD Faces by Citrix. It is amazing. You can collaborate online by sharing your presentation. While seeing colleagues face-to-face in high definition, they can hide their blemishes. Video quality is so clear and natural, it's like being in the same room. And all you need is an Internet connection with a webcam It's that easy. So here's what I can do. For example, on the Paracast, which I host with my friend Chris O'Brien, we live in different locations. We need to share something, a document or something like that. All I have to do is call him up with GoToMeeting, and I say, Chris, take a look at this, and he said he's ready to go. You can try GoToMeeting with HD Faces free for 30 days. Visit GoToMeeting.com, click the Try It Free button, enter the promo code PODCAST, use the promo code PODCAST. Good day, Peter Kranschnabel from Midas Resources. Today is October 28th, 2011. Gold opened this morning at 1737.40. A one ounce gold coin can be purchased for 1780.31, 890.15 for a half ounce, and 445.08 for a quarter ounce. 1780.31, 890.15, and 445.08. 
gold isn't for you? Hi, I'm Ted Anderson, and I get it. You wouldn't buy gold if you believed the government is doing a great job. The Fed will stop handing out trillions like bailout candy, but that's not what's happening. If all looks rosy, then now is not the time to buy gold. For the realists, there have never been more sobering reasons to diversify. Since 2001, the U.S. dollar index has tanked while gold has risen 1,600%. Savvy investors are adding gold to their portfolios. Find out what they know. Call us and I'll send you 10 reasons why gold will do very well. Free. Call 800-686-2237. Call 800-686-2237. That's 800-686-2237. There's a guy named Dr. Wallach who is anything but your typical doctor. Both a veterinarian and a naturopathic physician, Doc asks, why is this country spending more money on health care by far and ranking 50th in health and longevity worldwide? Doc believes that people should empower themselves with a basic understanding of nutrition, taking charge of their life, and attaining optimal health and longevity through nutrition, not by toxic pharmaceutical drugs that lead to side effects that require more expensive and toxic pharmaceutical drugs. Talk about being dependent on drug companies to our own destruction, no less. This is clearly a deadly recipe. Doc Wallach's message is resonating with an increasing number of Americans who are waking up to all the government and big pharma manipulation of our health and healthcare system. I like what Doc Wallach is saying and doing to enlighten people about healthcare, and I've joined forces with him to help this tireless crusader spread his message. Visit brightsidebend.com and listen to Doc Wallach's deadly recipe lectures. It makes a lot of sense, and I invite you to join our Brightside Ben team. Go to brightsidebend.com. That's www.brightsideben.com. Big Berkey water filters are in high demand. Storable foods are also in high demand. BigBerkeyWaterFilters.com has always kept our focus on the Berkey water filter products. But increasingly, our customers have been asking for storable foods. After months of research, BigBerkeyWaterFilters.com now offers great-tasting, long-lasting, storable foods. These ready-to-eat meals are packed in airtight nitrogen pouches. All you do is just add water. And because they're sealed so well, they come with a 25-year shelf life. Combine our Berkey water filters, which are powerful enough to purify treated, untreated, or even stagnant pond water with our storable foods, and you have a winning combination. Remember, we offer free shipping on every order over $50, and GCN listeners receive 5% off all ceramic filter systems. Visit BigBerkeyWaterFilters.com or call 877-99-BERKEY. That's BigBerkeyWaterFilters.com or call 877-99-BERKEY today. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Tech Night Owl Live, send it to news at technightowl.com. That's news at technightowl.com. And don't forget, you can visit the famous Tech Night Owl community forums at forum.technightowl.com. Get in on all the action. That's forum.technightowl.com. With Kirk McElher, an author and commentator, we're talking about 10 years of the iPod. And so interesting here that nobody else figured how to make these music players really work before Apple. I know I reviewed several products for CNET, several MP3 players ahead of the arrival of the iPod, and they were almost universally unusable. Yeah, I, I never had any before the iPod. I did have an early device that I got from Audible, the company that does digital audiobooks, which was pretty similar to a lot of the MP3 players. I don't remember what it was called. It was a tiny little device that had, I don't know, 64 megabytes of memory. It was really small. Yeah, Apple, as often, paid attention to the usability and the click wheel and scroll wheel 
concept for navigating was actually an extremely practical way to navigate through your collection. And it still works very well on the classic today. I mean, it's something that's become just normal, that sort of navigation, as opposed to the earlier ones that were basically, you'd press buttons to move up and down and through menus. Well, of course, touch is what came. Right, but they're still selling the classic with this same scroll wheel. And the concept, in a way, the concept of touching the scroll wheel probably led to the iPod touch and the iOS and the iPhone and all of that. Well, certainly it was much simplified. True. Mm -hmm. But over the years, we've seen a variety of different iPod models. I bought my first iPod in 2003 because the first iPod was expensive. It was, what, $400 for five gigabytes? I mean, you look at that now and it's almost laughable how little storage it had. And over the years, I've had a couple of dozen iPods. And, you know, since I write about the iPod regularly, I pretty much have to own every model or at least every model when they actually change it. I didn't buy an iPod Touch this year because nothing's really changed. And the number of different models that they've had is actually kind of impressive, how they've changed direction over the years. And in some ways, the direction change comes from Apple. But I think in other ways, the direction change comes from consumers who decide, we like this model this year, and, and a couple years later, they get used to a different way of interacting with their music collections. Personally, I don't care for the current iPod Nano. I think that that little screen with touch icons doesn't work, but I don't have a new one which has the larger icons, so it may work a little bit better. I really like the slim Nano of about, what, three years ago, when it was just a really thin device with a little screen that you could put in your pocket. I'm not really big on the clip-on idea for the Nano. I think they want you to exercise with it, I guess. Yeah, that's part of it. But you've got the iPod Shuffle. If you're going to exercise, you don't need access to a lot of your collection. You'll toss 100 songs on an iPod Shuffle. It's certainly cheap enough that you can do that, whereas the iPod Nano is a lot more expensive for something the same size that's small and kind of easy to lose in certain ways. Do you think that Apple is actually moving many classics? I mean, they keep it in the product line, even though they don't mention it, because there are a few people out there like Kirk McElhern who owns zillions of songs. Did I say zillions? No, I think about 80,000 currently in my library. You know, when I was writing this article for Macworld about the classic, I looked on Amazon.com to see what the most popular, well, they call them MP3 players, most popular music players were. And at the time, the classic was, I think, number four or number five, something like that. If you look now, as we speak, the classic comes up at number four. So the first three best-selling MP3 players on Amazon are the iPod Touch 8 gigabytes, white and black, the iPod Touch 32 gigabytes, and the Classic comes in ahead of the Shuffle and ahead of the Nano. So yes, I think they are selling a lot of them. Why they don't talk about it, I don't know. It's kind of strange, isn't it? Well, out of sight, out of mind, maybe one of the quirks of Steve Jobs, who maybe sometime in his last day said, let's get rid of that product. And they said, well, not really, because we're still selling a fair number. So he said, don't mention it. But then, you know, Apple does strange things. Like this week, they upgraded in a very small fashion the MacBook Pro lineup with faster processors, bigger hard drives, same price, changed graphics chips, 
not a single press release about it. A couple of years ago, they would have done an, an Apple event for that sort of an upgrade. But what's happening now is that their product line has expanded so much that they're choosing which devices, which software, which products merit Apple events. Now, since they just did one recently, there's a good chance that they're not doing one for the MacBook Pro. Suggests there'll be another one coming before Christmas. They can't do one every month. That's just too much. Well, so, it's not just that. It's the fact that the you know MacBook Pro would have merited a press release at most because it's just really a minor refresh. But yeah, normally they, they didn't even they, spend the time to have someone spend an hour to no, write a press release. How long would it take? No, they, an hour? They didn't do that. But you know, thinking of the iPod Classic and not being changed in a while also makes me think of the Mac Pro, which basically hasn't been changed for, what, five years? When you consider, I mean, they've certainly changed the processor and all of that, but the actual case of the Mac Pro hasn't changed since, what is it, 2005 when the first one came out or 2006? Well, of course, in 2005, you had a Power Mac G5 originally, okay? And that was out, what, 2004, 2005, when Apple went to the Intel processors, they left the externals alone pretty much and just changed the internals because of the new chassis. That's the way it's been. The last update was last year, but one key reason why there's no update is because Intel hasn't produced new chips, new Xeon chips. They're due early next year. That's when you have the update. There's no reason otherwise. But it's it's another device that even when they've done updates in the past couple of years, it's been relatively quiet. Now, there may have been press releases. I'll give you that. But they haven't changed much. It just keeps chugging along. And, you know, like the iPod Classic, I, my guess is that it's, a, it's selling fairly well. So, you know, what, what's, what's Apple's logic? They want to push the newer products because that's where things are changing much more. They don't want to push as much an existing product, even if it's selling well. I think they want to just keep, you know, keep people interested in what's new, basically. Well, in the case like that, it's really not much of a change to announce. They're so just changing a few components. Right. But in the past, they did that when they had fewer products. You have to admit. Now, speaking of various histories, I'm looking over the book about the choices made with the iPad, speaking of Intel. Do you know originally, I don't know if you were at that point in the book, originally Steve Jobs planned to have the iPad use the Intel Atom chip. I'm only up to the the, the Macintosh right now. I haven't had time to read too much. But yes, I, I remember hearing that before. And of course, when Apple bought, what was the name of the chip company they bought? That's PA Semi. And another company called Intrinsity. Right. Okay, so that's where they got the design, but they basically took the core ARM architecture and modified it. But originally, Steve Jobs was going to use the Intel Atom, but then as one thing they realized, this is great for high power, but, you know, when you want low current utilization as you require with a mobile device, it's not so easy. Now, we've also got something new there, neighbors. We have a brand new forum system. Yes, we've completely overhauled our Tech Night Owl Live community forums just for you. So you get livelier discussions. You get more integration with Twitter, more integration with Facebook, but still easy, easy, speedy navigation. Where do you find it? You find it at forum.technightowl.com, forum.technightowl.com. Please pay us a visit. We have Kirk McElhern, author and commentator. I'm Gene Steinberger in the Tech Night Owl Live. The GCN Radio Network.
Providing the world with hard-hitting talk radio. G-C-N. Great talk radio starts here. Ray Perkins, a reclusive veteran burned out from the Gulf War, lives tortured by relentless, perplexing nightmares. Nightmares of a horrific battle in deep space and of a mysterious woman suffering in agony for her devastated world. A woman not yet born, calling across centuries to him. Then... A coincidence leads him to his destiny, his chance to alter the universe. Attack Attack. of the Rockwell. The former fiction editor for Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Robert Simpson, writes, The soul of the novel Attack of the Rockoids lies in its heart and passion for building a convincing tale of a love that spans a galaxy. A thrilling story. Attack Attack. of the Rockoids is available now. Read a sample chapter and get a special discount off of the cover price at our website, rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Attack, attack of the Rockwell, a novel in the grand science fiction tradition. Introducing a diabetes breakthrough, an easy, natural, organic way to bring relief to diabetics. Introducing MDS Forte, a concentrated super strength extract formulated for those who are looking for relief. What can MDS Forte do for you? MDS Forte reduces glucose levels safely and effectively, reduces cholesterol and triglyceride levels, increases HDL or good cholesterol while reducing LDL or bad cholesterol. MDS Forte reduces A1C, improves eyesight and circulation to the limbs, and helps with weight loss. Is non-toxic, caffeine-free, 100% natural, 100% organic, and comes with a 100% money back guarantee waiting for the side effects disclaimers with mds forte there are none order a 25-day treatment of mds forte by calling 213-405-5355 213-405-5355 or visit bestbloodsupport.com that's bestbloodsupport.com for mds forte a diabetes breakthrough This is a special announcement for all Americans who owe back taxes to the IRS or state. Pay attention. There is a special toll-free hotline set up especially for you. This hotline will give you free information on how you can legally reduce or eliminate your tax debt. Call the Consumer Tax Hotline today at 1-800-652-3707. Grab a pen or put the number in your cell phone, but call 1-800-652-3707. When you call, you will speak with qualified companies that will tell you how to stop the collection calls, IRS letters, bank levies, and wage garnishments. Plus, these companies will deal directly with the IRS on your behalf, so you won't have to. Even if you haven't filed returns or you're already in a payment plan, you can still get relief. The current government administration is very amicable and wants to work out a program in your best interest. But this won't last forever, and your tax problem only gets worse if you do nothing or try to handle it yourself. It does make a big difference in who you call. So call the Consumer Tax Hotline today for free information. 1-800-652-3707. That's 1-800-652-3707. Keeping food on hand for emergencies protects you the same way as does insurance on your home or car. With Freeze-Dry Guy freeze-dried foods in your food reserve, you can be ready for just about any unexpected crisis. Right now, for the month of October 2011, Freeze-Dry Guy is letting their customers get first dibs on the meat bucket special. That's roasted chicken, Southwest-style chicken, teriyaki-style chicken, stroganoff-style beef, cheesy ground beef, and savory roasted ground beef. Just add hot water and enjoy. Portable, easy, convenient. Real meat, real good. Supplies won't last with this special offer. Order today to... 
beef up your freeze-dried meat supply. You'll even get $20 back in survival bucks or loyalty dollars when you beat the rush and order our freeze-dried meat buckets. Go to freezedryguy.com. That's freezedryguy.com. Or call 866-404-3663. That's 866-404-FOOD. Live with Gene Steinberg. It's the Tech Night Owl. Because you never know what's going to happen next. We started with the history of the iPod, and we're going into other Apple products and Apple decisions. And I was just reading, as I was talking to our guest, Kirk McElhern, about the fact that Apple first considered the Intel Atom for the iPad, then went with ARM, partly at the urging, I guess, of Tony Fidel, who's no longer with the company, by the way. He currently has a company that announced a high-end thermostat. That's a very interesting-looking device. The thermostat apparently learns from the way you change your heating settings. I'll be curious to see how that actually works when people get them and and use them in in real-world situations. Yep. Going to see what happens. All right, let's go back to the iPod. Now, Steve Jobs was, at one point, notorious for basically taking a design that was successful, like with a Nano, throwing out the design, trying something else the following year. And the Nano is the one that actually have seen the most changes over the years. As, as I said earlier, you can see the, the lineage in the current iPod Classic um, and how it's descended from the original iPod. The Nano, which started as the Mini in early 2004 with a sort of vertical approach, um, slimmer than the classic, but the same sort of concept with a with a click wheel and a screen above, morphed into this little clip-on nano, what is it, a year and a half ago or a little more than a year ago, and followed the shuffles concept. But the nano has been something that's changed. The, the screen direction changed. It had a video camera for a while. Um, it's changed a great deal over time, which is kind of interesting. It suggests that at that price point and that storage point, let's call it a mid-range device, they don't exactly know what works best. If they knew, they wouldn't be changing it so much. I mean, the iPod Classic has been like, in its current incarnation, it's been like this for three years. Um, The Shuffle, actually, they made the mistake with the tiny little Shuffle and came back. But the Nano has been all over the, the map, and they've never really figured out the best way to do that. I think at this point, they're just going to solidify and modify it over the years. There's no reason to change it a lot anymore. Well, there's always reason to change it because a different form factor may be more easy to use and may sell better. I mean, look at it this way. They can't change the form factor of the iPod Touch because of the nature of the screen. So it's going to be that same shape forever. It might be thinner. It might change in size a tiny bit. But it's got to be that shape the same as the iPhone. They can't really change the Classic because it's the only hard drive-based iPod and the hard drive itself takes itself takes up a lot of space. The click wheel, the screen, they could replace them with, who knows, little, little wheels on the side or something like that, but they can't make a big change in it. Well, the other the thing sh- you have to bear in mind is at some point in time, flash memory will be so cheap that they could put 128 gigabytes or 256 and keep the price relatively the same. Not today, not tomorrow, maybe a few years from now. My thought is that the iPod Classic is going to continue as it is until they can get either 128 or 256 in the iPod Touch at an affordable price. Or everybody's using iCloud for their music. Well, whether or not it's iCloud, um, iPod Touch means that you're selling apps in addition to 
you know, music. People who have an iPod Touch are going to be buying other apps and using it for other things. The iPod Classic is limited to music and a few lame games that Apple sort of took off their website not long before the last Apple event. So I think when we get the iPod Touch at 128 at an affordable price, then the Classic may go. I would rather it be more than 128 because, you know, Classic's 160. It's already not enough for me. Look at the prices now. The Classic's $249. For that price, you're in between an 8-gig and a 32-gig iPod Touch. The 32 is $300. The 64-gig iPod Touch is $400. So to get the same amount of storage in a Classic, you'd have to buy, let's say, three iPod Touches for $1,200. Now, You can buy it. I'm not going to buy it. Well, I wouldn't buy it either, and that's the whole point of the iPod Classic is it's a great – I know a lot of people who use them in their cars. A great device. It's it's solid. You put a ton of music on it, and you don't really have to worry too much about it. You wouldn't want to – why would you want an iPod Touch in your car at the price – at the cost of it? It's not something you're going to leave in your car unless – unless you're rich, of course. But when you look at the cost of flash memory, that's what's keeping the iPod Classic alive. Exactly. And I don't know, at this point, let's see, you get a 512 gigabyte solid-state drive for your MacBook Pro for $1,100. All yeah. right? Now, someday that's going to be $200, and someday 256 is going to be $100. But when? It's hard to tell. I have no idea how prices change in this sort of market, but we've seen them... Um, constantly go down at a if you were to plot prices um, of flash memory and I know that flash memory is actually traded like a commodity I think and there are sort of fixed prices per gigabyte um, and the prices have gone down steadily in some ways relatively quickly when you think about it you know this is just a few years that we've gotten really affordable flash memory um, to use for startup drives and SSDs and things like that so, I don't know. I'm going to speculate two years that the iPod Classic will be replaced by the iPod Touch. Apple buys so much flash memory that maybe they'll be able to bring the price down more. You know, one thing they might do with their $80 billion of cash is buy either a company that makes flash memory or the, a division of a company that makes flash memory or something like that in order to cut out the middleman and be able to lower prices even more on these devices. Now, the other thing I guess we should talk about, since we're focusing on the hardware, is the way the music industry changed. When the iPod first came out, of course, at that point, I guess the music industry was on the ropes because more and more people were using Napster and other services to get pirated songs. Apple changed that. Yeah, well, back in the day, you say more and more people, it was still a pretty limited phenomenon because how many people had broadband 10 years ago? I mean... Not many. I first got it in 2002, um, which was actually pretty early considering that I live in a relatively small town. But I think before that, people didn't have broadband. They were downloading songs, but they weren't downloading huge amounts of songs as they are now. Um, I think the iPod changed the music industry in a number of ways. One of them is introducing Shuffle. Um, the concept of not listening to albums but just letting songs play in a random manner meant people, for most people, drifted away from the concept of albums as it is and ended up buying individual songs. Now, you, I don't know if they're still selling these CD singles. Um, for some reason, you know, this was something the music industry tried. And what was a CD single? It was like four or five bucks for two songs or three songs um, on your same size CD as an album. Um, 
but with the iTunes Store in the iTunes Store was two thousand four, I think. Um, with the iTunes, no, it's two thousand three. With the iTunes Store and Shuffle, people started buying individual songs rather than buying albums, and this helped solidify the slide in music sales. Well, the other thing too is we've seen over the years people buying fewer and fewer CDs. Now, I yeah. think part of it is that you know the music industry goes in cycles, and I just think that most of today's acts are just not as compelling. And that might be the old man in me speaking over... Yeah, I was going to say, you, you and me are old. And, I understand you know, that, but even young people are embracing older acts who have this well, second chance at success because they've got young audiences. It, it's kind of interesting because my, my son, who you know is 21 years old, um, and his music tastes are kind of interesting because a lot of what he likes is what he's heard from me. And he really likes Pink Floyd, for instance. Um, and a lot of what he likes is, you know, current bands, and he's particularly interested in like uh, electronic and dance music and stuff like that. So, yeah, he does in some ways embrace older bands, but he's certainly interested uh, in what music is out there now. So it's kind of hard to say. Now, the music industry goes in cycles, and some of these cycles are sort of artificial because if you remember when the CD came out, all of a sudden you had this much better quality than vinyl and I don't care what anyone says about vinyl sounding quote unquote warmer that's just a way of saying that the distortion is something you're familiar with you know it's um, very interesting in another segment of this episode the one coming after you we're going to have audio engineer Bob Carver talk about all his inventions which impacted the audio industry and about analog and digital sound and lots more we have kirk mackelher an author and commentator back for more on the tech night out live america's number one source for independent talk radio for over a decade we are the gcn radio network Graphic Converter is the image manipulation tool for the rest of us. It does not use any database. You get full control of all your files. Want to view the images of a folder? Drag it into Graphic Converter, and a powerful browser opens up to show your image files. You could use it for slideshows. You could use it to import images from digital cameras or from scanners. Need to do some image editing? You can do that, too, in Graphic Converter. Also, print catalogs convert from so many formats i can't even list them download now to see if graphic converter is good for you like one and a half million other users guess what you could save money when you buy graphic converter use the coupon code night owl use the coupon code night owl to get a special price for graphic converter go to lemkesoft.com that's l-e-m-k-e soft.com lemkesoft.com l-e-m-k-e soft.com I have bought a few bottles of heart and body extract and have to say that it it certainly does work. That's what Jack from Michigan had to say after his experience with heart pain and what he did to treat it with heart and body extract. I actually had a huge heart flutter. I was also having some edema around my ankles and very worrisome clot in my uh, right leg that would happen from time to time while I was trying to sleep. Heart and body extract is all natural with no negative side effects. It will help repair or correct past problems associated with the heart and body circulation. After my second bottle of heart and body extract, all problems are now gone. 
Order at hbextract.com or call 866-295-5305. I ordered a third bottle of Heart and Body Extract for maintenance as I want to keep everything working. Order Heart and Body Extract at 866-295-5305 or hbextract.com. Heart and Body Extract for a long and healthy life. You can bet your life on eFoods Direct. Alex has told you about the amazing, great-tasting, long-term storable food from eFoods Direct and how a food savings account is your best insurance against natural disasters, job loss, and high food costs. But did you know that this dehydrated food also protects you against foodborne contaminants like E. coli and salmonella? Those poisonous critters can't live in low-moisture food from eFoods Direct. Ask for the Alex Fall Special. The Fall Special is a 24-day supply of food in a convenient portable container. A $259 value for only $199. Save $60 on 160 servings of the best food on the planet. Call 800-409-5633 and ask for the Alex Fall Special and go to eFoodsDirect.com slash Alex. Call 24 hours, 800-409-5633 or eFoodsDirect.com slash Alex. You can bet your life on eFoodsDirect. We all know that Berkey Water Purification Systems are the most trusted name in water filtration. As an authorized Berkey dealer for over six years and serving thousands of satisfied customers, the Berkey Guy offers amazing specials for Berkey Water Filtration Systems. The Berkey Light Systems include a set of self-sterilizing and recleanable black purification elements that purify water by removing chlorine, pathogenic bacteria, cysts and parasites to non-detectable levels and remove harmful chemicals such as herbicides and pesticides. Order the Berkey Light System today complete with two black Berkey elements for only $231 and the Berkey guy will ship your order free of charge. With the purchase of a Berkey light, the Berkey guy is also offering a set of fluoride and arsenic filters for only $39.99. That's over 30% off the retail price. Call the Berkey guy at 1-877-886-3653. That's 1-877-886-3653. Or order online at GoBerkey.com. That's GoBerkey.com today. Do you know what's going to happen next? Well, here's the Tech Night Owl, live with Gene Steinberg. We have Kirk McElhern, author and commentator. On the 10th anniversary of the iPod, how the music industry changed, number one being the focus on singles rather than albums. Number two, that Apple was able to get the music industry to sign up to agree to its terms and no one else could do that before then no when when apple brought out the itunes store it was actually a huge huge coup to get all of the major labels on board and you know steve jobs and apple was able to explain to them that look we're giving people a legal way to buy music very easily with just a couple of clicks um it's much better than ignoring all of these online sales and allowing people to just pirate music. Now, of course, in the early days, this involved DRM or digital rights management on music, which meant that you couldn't copy the music to other devices and it had all of these complications. And 
the music industry finally had to give up on that. Um, not only that, but all of the different copy protection schemes that they tried to use on CDs because, first of all, they didn't work. Second of all, they actually caused problems. Um, on Windows, it would install software. The CDs would install software. It was just a, a huge problem. But by doing this, Apple was able to become the leading music retailer, at least in the U.S., and I think the music industry strongly regrets this decision that they made to give Apple so much control. Now, if they had said no back then, who knows what would have happened? Would there have been a handful of smaller music? Would each label have sold the music directly? So rather than going to a single store for all your music, you're going to a dozen stores? I don't know. but uh, That would hardly it, be convenient. You see, right now, hardly, for example... What songs are not available on iTunes anymore? You have the Beatles. You have most of the acts that we talk about. There can't be more than a handful that aren't there. Well, there's certainly some stuff that's not there. I don't know of any major bands. But uh, as, as we've talked about, I'm a classical music fan, and I will go directly to label sites to buy music because it's either cheaper, easier to get, because maybe they don't. iTunes doesn't have a full catalog. You know, there are all sorts of reasons. So... For me, given the type of music I like, it's not necessarily a problem to go to different stores. But for the average music consumer, obviously, they, they want a music store that's like Walmart. They want to go in and see everything. And this is the success of the iTunes store. Uh, another thing I think that the iPod did to change music is it changed the way we listen to music, the way we approach our music collections. I can walk around with so much music in my pocket, in my iPod Classic, weeks, months of music audiobooks, you know, other spoken word content. I have a box set of all of Shakespeare's plays, for instance, on my iPod, all of the music for, by some of my favorite musicians, whereas remember what it was like back in the LP day or even in the CD day or cassette day, how much space this would all take up. So in a way, the access we have to music is almost too simple that we can listen to whatever we want, whenever we want. We don't have to plan ahead and think that, okay, I'm going on a car trip and I need to bring a dozen cassettes. And I think this has made music in some ways more of a sort of commodity that we can ignore. But in other ways, music has become an integral part of people's life, much more than back in the days of, say, the Walkman, when at most you carried three or four cassettes in your pocket. Now, one more thing. There's going to be a feature. It may debut before you hear this episode of the Tech Night Out Live. It's called iTunes Match, where for, what is it, $29.99 per year, they will match up to 25,000 of your tunes with the equivalent, and that's in quotes, version on iTunes. And I'm kind of wondering here if I have the version of the Beatles CD that was first remastered in the 1980s, will Apple give me the current version? Or will yeah. they not consider that a match? No, I, I think what's going to happen, um, first of all, it's twenty four ninety nine, not twenty nine ninety nine. I think what's going to happen is you're going to get whatever the current version is. Um, they're going to use a sort of, well, they're going to first check tags, and then they're going to use acoustic fingerprinting to figure out exactly what your music is. And then they're going to say, well, here's what we have. It's the same. We don't know yet if it's a 95% match, if they're going to ask you if it's the same for you. And I'm particularly curious with the, the more obscure classical music I have um, to know how well it's going to match. One thing that's kind of interesting is that you can, as far as everyone knows, this is going to be a sort of an amnesty. Because no matter where you got the music in your iTunes library, 
iTunes Match is going to recognize it. So if you've downloaded some crappy MP3 files from, you know, at 64 kilobits or whatever, iTunes Match is going to recognize the music and give you access to 256K files, which are much better quality. And basically, you're legalizing your music collection for 25 bucks a year. Which is better than getting nothing. Well, better for whom? Well, better, better for, for the for music the, industry because that twenty four ninety nine that you pay, a certain portion of that is going to the music industry for licensing the songs and letting you do that. Yeah, okay. Well, let's look at this at an extreme level. So I, I, I have an empty iTunes library. And I say, hey, 25 bucks, and I can get any music I download and make it legal. So I'm going to go to you know Pirate Bay or whatever and download a gazillion songs and albums and all that, put them in my iTunes library, and iTunes is going to keep matching them for 25 bucks a year. Now, if the music industry really needs that 25 bucks a year to pay for piracy, why don't they go the route of what's been proposed as a global license, where you just pay, and the music industry figures out how to remunerate the different artists. Maybe they have some way of you know detecting what's played the most that your software sends the info. Why don't you just have a flat rate for people to get music. Now, I don't I don't think that's the solution to the problem of music and piracy, but this is sort of what's happening with iTunes Match. Well, I guess we'll have to see how it works out in practice and also whether if you have more than 25,000 tunes you can get an upgrade. I mean, you have 5 gigabytes of storage standard. If you're willing to pay extra per year, you get up to 100 gigabytes of storage on a sliding scale of rates. Will Apple let those who have larger music collections like Kirk McElhern, who has 4 million songs in his hip pocket, very big hip pocket with like 30 iPod classics, <laughs> whether he could do it or not? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, they, they say they've got 20 million songs. Um, they say you can have 25,000 for free, and after that, you've got to pay. Remember, iTunes Match and iCloud are two slightly different things. You'll, you don't have to if, – if my 80,000 tracks aren't matched, I don't have to upload the ones that aren't matched and pay for the space. I can just say they're not being matched. At least that's how I understand it. So you don't necessarily have to choose to put all your music uh, on iTunes Match either. Of course, again, we'll see this when we get to. And uh, possibly get- by a future interview, we will know enough about iTunes Match to see how it works. Let's just return to that little rumor that I mentioned during the first part of this interview. The Apple-connected TV. TV. Yeah. Okay, do you think it's going to happen? I'm still skeptical. I'm, I'm skeptical, and I'll tell you why. Um, well, I, I, I could go both ways, and, and there's two reasons for this. The reason I'm skeptical is that it's a market where people don't necessarily buy a brand for features. They buy a brand for size and for quality, um, and then they look at features. So if Apple wants to really go into the market of the TV, they can't just sell like two sizes like they do for the iMac. So they've either got to have a full line of TVs, say from, I don't know, you know, 32 inch up to 60 inch, so half a dozen models, or they're going to limit it to two. The second I thing- would think maybe they'll do 32 and 50 or something like that. Okay. Now, the second the thing above that 50, in, if they're going LCD, it's going to be humongously expensive. Right. The second thing that leans in the direction of them going to it is that they've got retail stores where they can sell these things, and they don't have to give up margin to the resellers, and they can highlight them, and really they can push them in their stores. So it certainly makes it possible for them to sell them. I'm going to, I'm going to vote skeptical um, that it just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense for Apple to go into that market. 
I think it is so commoditized at this point, it's going to be difficult. They can get into a very niche market like Bose with their video wave TV, which costs over $5,300 because you get this tricked out sound system. But otherwise, it's just a 46-inch LCD TV. You know, lots of things there. I'm skeptical. I think Apple's going to look at the interface, the thing that interacts with the TV, something, you know, upgraded from Apple TV. Who knows? And, and, may, and maybe it's going to be an add-on like the current Apple TV, which would be expanded rather than a full TV set. Because, again, what's the point of them making a full TV set? What can they bring to it other than the interface, which could just be a plug-on device? Okay, Kirk McElhern, where do we find more of your stuff? Well, the usual places, McElhern.com, my website, where I post plenty of articles about Macs and music and many other things, and Macworld, um, where I regularly write about iTunes and the iPod. And we've been exploring 10 years of the iPod, how it changed the music industry, and very, very briefly, hmm, how will Apple deal with entering your living room? Will it be a TV set? Will it be an add-on product? Who knows? Kirk McElhern, thanks for joining us on the Tech Night Owl Live. Thank you, Gene. See you soon. Are you tired of searching for great talk radio? Something more important. Search no more. We are the GCN Radio Network. Hi, Ted Anderson announcing a great way to listen to radio on the telephone. By calling 760-569-7700, you'll be hearing GCNlive.com programs in seconds. Come to GCNlive.com, find your favorite host's dedicated phone number, and hear them 24-7. You heard me right, every show has a dedicated phone number. Stop by GCNlive.com and bookmark their number today. And again, that's 760-569-7700. Hi, this is Ted Anderson. Have you ever wondered why banks, stockbrokers, investment advisors won't talk about gold IRAs? They've been available since 1986, yet the financial industry won't recognize the value of gold for your retirement. Gold has outperformed paper investments, yet no word about IRAs. If you would like to have gold for your retirement, call 800-686-2237. Don't get left behind by rising inflation and low returns. Call 800-686-2237. Secure your future and call 1-800-686-2237. Welcome back to the Tech Night All Live, where you never know what's going to happen next. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. Neighbors, this is an episode I've been wanting to do for a very long time now. You'll find out why in just a moment. We have an old friend of mine joining us this week, Bob Carver, who's very well known in the audio business. I mean, he's been around for a lot of years with great inventions. I mean, when people build audio gear, Bob would take that stuff and he would come out with some unique way of making things sound better or different. And this is probably one of your first or early radio appearances. Have you been on radio before? Yes. Okay. Here's the deal, Bob. You got started, basically you went to school studying physics, engineering. Why audio? Why aren't you building super colliders now? Well, it all began uh, one day when I was in Pasadena, California, and I was walking along a sunlit street. I walked past a store window, and it was a corner store, and as I looked inside the window, just by happenstance, I saw the most beautiful thing I had ever seen in my life. It was absolutely glorious. I was smitten, captivated, and I just stared at it dumbfoundedly. It 
was a Macintosh 275 amplifier with chrome chassis, black transformers. I barely knew what it was, but I realized it was an audio amplifier, and I wanted one in the worst way. Couldn't afford it. I was absolutely a broke student, but I gazed at it, and I began to build one for myself. And that's part of how I, how I got started in audio. Now, understand, ladies and gentlemen, this Macintosh is not the Macintosh, the computer Macintosh, okay, which is spelled differently. This is an audio company that sold very sophisticated gear. Are they still around? Macintosh is still around, and they still make that same amplifier. And this is, what, 40 years ago? 40 years ago, yes. Mm -hmm. Do they still make this stuff in America, or do they build it overseas? Uh, you know, I'm not certain. I think they're very high-end. The very best stuff they make is still made locally, and the IE, meaning the United States. But I'm not certain of that. It was a beautiful, a beautiful piece of gear. It had a deep influence on me. However, that was the second inoculation of being influenced into audio. The first one was one day when I was three years old, my father said he was an engineer. He said, Bob, my name was Bobby. We are going to go, I'm going to take you to a place that you can see your voice, watch your voice. And I thought, Dad, there is no way I can see my voice. I could not imagine seeing my voice. We can hear my voice, but we can't see it. I was three. Um, I know I was three because my brother hadn't been born yet, and he's three years younger than I. So we got in the car, and we drove and drove and drove and drove, and we came to a friend's home, and we went inside, and there was an oscilloscope and a microphone. And I spoke into the microphone, we all spoke into the microphone, and I could see my voice bouncing on the oscilloscope screen as I spoke into the microphone. You were looking I at waveforms, kind of like when we do audio, digital audio now. We see your voice on the screen as a waveform, which is somewhat similar to an oscilloscope. That's exactly right. It's a visual rep representation of the sound from my vocal cords and from my lips. And uh, that was astonishing to me. I never forgot that experiment. And as I grew older, and uh, I decided that uh, I was, I loved audio, so I started making audio things. And I built them in my home. I was in high school by then. And uh, my mother was a pianist, and my father was an engineer. So how, I mean, I had a rich, a tremendously rich home life, seemingly specific, specifically designed for a budding audio engineer. And so that's, that's how I got started. And um, I started building my own amplifiers when I was in high school. Now, the one thing, I guess, that has been the hallmark of something that Bob Carver designs is you add something interesting. You do something with the circuit, or you develop things, and you have different patents in your name that makes them work in a unique fashion. So when did you get involved in that? What was your first invention? Well... Um, my first invention, audio invention, really the first patent I received was for a 700-watt amplifier. And what drives my, what drives my uh, invention, inventions is a long-felt need. I felt there was a need for something, and there was. Um, there was a need for a very powerful amplifier. Remember, by then, I was, I was uh, just getting out of graduate school, and um, loudspeakers were very inefficient. We had AR3s. We uh, had, I think we had sound labs, big electrostatic panels. We had Dahlquist DQ10s. 
their efficiencies were very low, and we had Bose 901s, very low efficiencies. So to make a speaker play at a, at a volume that was emotionally satisfying and even intellectually satisfying, we had to have big amplifiers. None existed. The biggest amplifier uh, literally on the face of the planet at the time was the Crown DC-300, and it was not adequate to the task. So I decided that we needed to have a bigger one, and so I designed a very large amplifier. And the, the devices, the ability to do it, um, nobody had been able to do it. And I invented something called an energy limiter that, was a, that protected the output devices and the output transistors from blowing up, um, which early transistor amplifiers did. Uh, they always blew up, and the biggest one was about 100 watts, typically, except for the crown, which was uh, even bigger. I'll tell you what, just parenthetically here. I used to have a Dynaco ST70 from the 1970s. <laughs> right. And about every year it would blow up, I'd have to replace the output transistors. It was the most frustrating thing I ever had, until I bought one of your amplifiers in the 1980s. But this one, every year or two... I had to go back, take it into the shop. It would start overheating and would burn out the power transistors. Hmm. That was the problem with early de- transistor amplifiers. They, I, I was lucky. Uh, the, um, I, I was very fortunate. I, the energy limiter that I developed allowed the output transistors to run safely, continuously. And the, other, the flip side of that good luck was that Delco was building transistors for automobile ignition systems in those days. And it was really the only transistor in the whole world that would do the job. It had extremely high voltage and had the bandwidth I needed. Uh, The next transistor in line to do that was made by many, many people, including Motorola. It was good for 100 watts. These transistors, these Delco, uh, triple diffused, high energy, high voltage, and very speedy devices were good for my 700-watt amplifier, 350 watts per channel. So basically, you built this amplifier using parts from Delco. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's kind of cut to the chase here. You decided to manufacture this. That's right. Exactly. Because I figured if I needed it, the world needed it. And it (laughs) turns out they did. And that was evidenced when I sent it to Stereo Review, and Julian Hurst, the journalist there, uh, reviewed it and said, man, we didn't believe that anybody could possibly use 700 watts, but we, we actually have come to the conclusion that maybe it's not quite enough. <laughs> so, and he wrote that up, you know, in Stereo Review, circulation just barely under the circulation of Playboy magazine. So it had, a, it had an enormous effect, and I was in business. So the company was called? Phase Linear. Right. So you had Phase Linear, and what other things did you invent during the lifetime of Phase Linear? Uh, well... Not very many things after that, actually. Uh, but I, I, I did develop some new products. I came out with a 400-watt version of that 700-watt amplifier. And I developed, after that, a preamp. And the preamp was very unusual and did contain some patents. It, I wanted to build a preamp that was unlike any others, other and address some of the shortcomings that, recorder, that recordings had. And one of them was noise, surface noise. Remember, we didn't have digital audio then. We only had, uh, we didn't even have CDs. We had vinyl. Right. And, and of course, as you kept playing the record, it get noisier and noisier and noisier. Yes, exactly. So I developed a thing called an autocorrelator, which removes the surface noise by about 12 dB. No, not 12 dB. It's about 
11 dB. So the point being basically a lot less surface noise. Our newly redesigned forums are up and ready at forum.technighthowl.com. Visit them, forum.technighthowl.com. Let me tell you, listeners, we're talking to audio legend Bob Carver about his experiences in the audio industry as an engineer and manufacturer, and later on we'll get his take on audio in 2011, his take of the industry. I'm Gene Steinberg. You're in the Tech Night Owl Live. Ray Perkins, a reclusive veteran burned out from the Gulf War, lives tortured by relentless, perplexing nightmares. Nightmares of a horrific battle in deep space and of a mysterious woman suffering in agony for her devastated world. A woman not yet born, calling across centuries to him. Then, a coincidence leads him to his destiny, his chance to alter the universe. Attack! Attack! Of the Rockoids. The former fiction editor for Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Robert Simpson, writes, The soul of the novel Attack of the Rockoids lies in its heart and passion for building a convincing tale of a love that spans a galaxy. A thrilling story. Attack, Attack of the Rockoids is available now. Read a sample chapter and get a special discount off of the cover price at our website, rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Attack, Attack. Of the Rockwell, a novel in the grand science fiction tradition. Greetings again. This is John Swenson at Midas Resources, your source for gold and silver. You know, I have the same crystal ball that you have when it comes to what's just around the corner. But we both know that there's nothing on the financial horizon that looks very good. The single measure of good news is that precious metals continue to outperform everything else out there. Right now is the time to take a hard look. Pricing is more attractive now than it's been in many months. Historically and traditionally, this is when prices rise the fastest. They haven't, and opportunities knocking. Please give me a call, 800-686-2237, extension 128. I promise you an informative, no pressure, no-nonsense conversation. We might even have some grins. This is John Swenson at Midas Resources, 800-686-2237, extension 128. Just make that call. Thanks. Did you know nuclear radiation is still spewing out of the melted-down reactors in Fukushima, Japan, and making its way across the entire U.S. continent, contaminating the air, water, and food? Dangerously high levels of radiation are a reality here. As a result, radiation poisoning is a distinct possibility for anyone living in the U.S., unless you do something to protect yourself. How? With Liquid Zeolite from RestoreYourHealthNow.com. Without a doubt, Liquid Zeolite is by far the best product to remove radiation from your body. It safely removes toxins. Toxins and heavy metals, boosts energy levels, and promotes a strong immune system. Liquid Zeolite is so powerful it was used to clean up contamination in Chernobyl, yet so gentle you won't even know you're taking it. Liquid Zeolite comes with a money-back guarantee, but is only available at RestoreYourHealthNow.com. Learn how to get free bottles of Liquid Zeolite by calling 800-880-9976. That's 800-880-9976. Or go to RestoreYourHealthNow.com. That's RestoreYourHealthNow.com. Are you tired of spending money for metal canning lids year after year? Then stop! 
Stop buying metal lids and get Tatler reusable canning lids. Made of USDA and FDA-approved food-grade plastic, Tatler canning lids let you safely store emergency preparedness foods for years. Traditional metal lids are single-use throwaways that contain BPA, but Tatler canning lids are indefinitely reusable and guaranteed to last a lifetime when used as designed for home canning and contain no BPA. Tatler lids are dishwasher safe, perfect for standard pressure or water bath canning, eliminate food spoilage from acid corrosion, fit standard mason jars, and are proudly made in the USA. Place orders by phone at 877-747-2793 or go to reusablecanninglids.com. That's 1-877-747-2793 or go to reusablecanninglids.com. That's reusablecanninglids.com. Tatler Reusable Canning Lids, the original since 1976. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Tech Night Owl Live, just send it to news at technightowl.com. That's news at technightowl.com. And if you want to catch up on past episodes, we have hundreds of shows for you to download direct from technightowl.com slash radio. That's technightall.com slash radio. Or check us out at iTunes. We have Bob Carver, the famous audio engineer, who's telling us about the early history of the audio business, how he built an amplifier more powerful than any other. He was with a company called Phase Linear. He developed an invention with this preamp where you could reduce the surface noise of records. Okay. Because especially as they get older, records get scratchier and scratchier and all that stuff, and the surface noise gets louder and louder. And nowadays, people are starting to buy records again, so maybe we need that invention all over again. What else did I you know, develop? it's ironic. Isn't it's that strange how things are yeah. they're even starting to bring back cassettes, but that's, I know. that's not a good thing. There was more to the preamp, too. It had um, another limitation in vinyl records in those days was that the dynamic range was truncated enormously. That uh, means, of course, the ratio of the loudest sounds to the softest sounds and the reason i did that of course is i used to watch mastering engineers do this is because when people played on their cheap phonograph record players you didn't want them to skip the records that's right the loud sounds were made less loud and the soft sounds were made louder so instead of an orchestra when a when an orchestra would play and the director would drop the sound level down and a, the, a French horn would be distant and haunting in effect, it would be up front, in your face, and present. Very unrealistic. So I developed something called the downward expander, which would take that French horn and allow it to be haunting once again, the way, the way Beethoven perhaps wrote the score. Did he write scores? Anyway, he wrote music, that's for sure. Ditto for the, uh, for the loudest portions. The loudest portions were compressed by a compressor at the recording studio, so a snare drum or the hit of a tom would come through the system at an unrealistically lower level. So the peak unlimiter uh, made it sound more or less like it should sound. But in between the peak unlimiter and the downward expander, the system didn't do very much at all. In fact, it didn't do anything. It just allowed the music to come through. But You worked in the extremes. It worked on the extremes. Okay. And it restored the missing dynamic range. The peak unlimiter by about 3 dB and the downward expander, if I recall, about 8 dB. I'm not sure. I can't remember anymore. It was a long time ago. Okay. Uh, it increased the dynamic range about 10 dB. Plus, the noise reduction system itself was definitely good for an 11. So it probably added approximately 20 dB of dynamic range to the LP. So basically, if you're listening on your home system, 
it sounds much more realistic. That's the long and short of it. That's exactly right. Okay. And it was ahead of its time. It also had a joystick on the front. It had a surround sound encoder built into it, and this is long before Dolby came out with with surround sound. Okay, this is the 1970s, and you're putting surround sound in there. That's right. Okay. It had a a separate little uh, set of outputs, and it had a joystick. It was a cool joystick, and the reason it had a cool joystick is because I fly model airplanes, and the model airplane transmitters had these cool joysticks on for left, right, up, and down. I put it on the front of a preamp and made it for front, back, left, and right. And if you hooked up another power amplifier and a set of speakers, it had a uh, a generator, a special kind of ambience generator internally that would take the left and right information from the record and turn it into sound that's suitable for a left and right surround speaker. Okay, and so this is basically, in the 1970s, it's like nowadays you go to a movie theater and they've got umpteen thousand speakers on the sides and the back and the front, and you're doing it in this preamp, so in theory you could set up from two speakers, you'd get all this effect? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, of course you could add more speakers if you wanted. That's what theaters do. You can add more speakers in parallel to the si- for the side channels and put three on each side if you wanted. But I like to put just one set of extra speakers slightly behind me in the room. That was the effect I was looking for, and it was to make a larger acoustic. Basically, you wanted the Boston Pops Orchestra or the Beatles to be filling your room. That is exactly right. With the musicians up front and the ambience and the large acoustic all around me to envelop me. That's what I liked. You wanted to be in the concert hall. Yes. Okay, so you built this thing. Now, how did the market accept this? Did everybody try to imitate it or what? Well, after Julian wrote a review, after Julian Hirsch, Larry Klein, and other magazines uh, wrote nice reviews about it, it took off. Marketing, I mean, the sales and marketing, well, the sales were fantastic, at least for me at the time. And I sold lots of them. And it took a long time for people to copy it. It took a very long time. So I had a good head start. And I was the only... I, I was the only game in town for peak unlimiters and downward expanders and surround sound and autocorrelators. And it was just a very successful product. And it, it launched, it was the launch product in the signal processing part as the power amps were the launch product for the power amplifier part. Okay, so you had phase linear, but later on you started a company with your name on it called Carver. What happened to phase linear? What happened to phase linear is I had a partner... I had a partner who wanted to sell out, and, and, and he and got together with my ex and said, we want to sell out, and together, especially my ex, of course, who owned 50% of the company, it's a community property state, they ganged up on me and said, we're going to sell. They wanted to take the money and run, and that was fine with me. And so what happened is they got together with an, an investment banker and decided they were going to sell the company and take the money and run. And, but they kicked me out first because I objected. I didn't want to do it. I, I, that felt to me like selling out. I have a different view on that now. It's okay to take the money and run. Uh, at the time, though, I was young. I was naive. I felt like it would be selling out. So I objected. Instead, uh, what happened is they just kicked me out. Then I went over and started Carver Corporation and got that up and running so quickly that... They weren't able to get very... I, I wiped them out in the marketplace very quickly. Now, of and course, you had the patents on all these inventions, so mm-hmm. you could just take them to Carver Corporation and build products with them. 
It wasn't quite that easy because if you're working for a company, and I, it was, although it was my company, I was still working for it technically. So um, the company that you work for gets to own the patents. The patents are said to be assigned to the company. But that wasn't a big deal because I was able to invent uh, other ones and get around them all. And I invent- <laughs> Sounds like what some of these companies are doing today with the iPhone and Apple is suing Samsung and everybody in creation because they come out with different alternatives. Okay, Carver, I remember Carver, the big thing about the first Carver amplifier is you had this tiny little amplifier with gobs of power. And how did you do that? Well, when I was kicked out of phase linear, I thought to myself, what I need is something that will garner, uh, that will get lots of attention. And I felt that there was a need, again, a long-felt need for a much smaller, physically smaller, lighter, less expensive amplifier. Big amplifiers were, were expensive back then, very expensive. Even mine, which was relatively inexpensive, was expensive. So um, I thought, well, what the world needs is a very small one. And I was, one day I was in Tiffany's, that's a jewelry store in uh, New York, and I saw this beautiful cube. It was a clock. But it was majestic. It was just a simple cube, and it was brushed aluminum. Now, ladies and gentlemen, before we go to the next segment, I'll tell you, this is not, this is something that predates the next cube and the Macintosh cube that Steve Jobs came up with. He had a cube first, Bob Carver, coming up on the Tech Night Owl Live. The GCN Radio Network, providing the world with hard-hitting talk radio. G-C-N. Great talk radio starts here. SellYourMac.com purchases used Apple computers, iPhones, iPads, and iPods through a safe, no-hassle transaction. They're a BBB-accredited business with an A-plus rating. You can rest assured you'll get paid for your expensive devices. They're in this business because they love Apple products. They want you to have the latest and greatest Apple gear available. Selling your used Mac, iPhone, or iPad will greatly reduce the cost of a new purchase. Get a free quote now from SellYourMac.com. So here's what happened. I was placing an order online. The site went down. It just stopped responding. It took hours before it returned, but I'd already placed the order with another company. If your site goes down, you could lose business. And if you have a business or personal site, you'll want to know it's easy to run and it will stay online. At iWeb, your site is hosted on one of the most reliable networks in the world. Check it out. iWeb.com. That's iWeb.com. What's been the problem with phone companies? High prices and contracts that lock you in for two years minimum. Not FreedomTelephones.com. Freedom Telephones are designed around the concept and reality of patriotism, loyalty, and privacy. With FreedomTelephones.com, there are no contracts, no credit checks, and no social security numbers required. That's why our name is FreedomTelephones.com. Finally, residential, mobile, and business telephones and plans that are private and never lock you into a long-term contract. Want a low price? Residential and business plans start at only $14.99, and mobile plans start at just $39.99. Plus, every month you pay your bill, FreedomTelephones.com contributes to your favorite GCN programs. Don't wait. Support the cause and get the highest quality and the lowest prices by calling one 800 600 5553. That's 800-600-5553. FreedomTelephones.com. Portable. Private. Perfect. 
Dr. Joe Wallach is not your typical doctor. Both a veterinarian and naturopathic physician, Dr. Wallach asked, Why does America spend more money on health care by far and yet ranks 50th in health and longevity worldwide? The doctor believes that people should be empowered with a basic understanding of nutrition, then take charge of their life to attain optimal health and longevity through nutrition, not by toxic prescription drugs that lead to side effects, requiring more toxic prescription drugs. Talk about being dependent on drug companies to our own destruction, no less. This is clearly a deadly recipe. Doc Wallach's message is resonating with an increasing number of Americans who are waking up to all the government and big pharma manipulation of our health care system. I like what Doc Wallach is saying and doing to enlighten people and have joined forces to help this tireless crusader spread his message. Visit GCNminerals.com and listen to Dr. Wallach's deadly recipes lecture. It makes a lot of sense, and I invite you to join the GCN Minerals team. Go to GCNminerals.com. That's GCNminerals.com. You can bet your life on eFoods Direct. Alex has told you about the amazing, great-tasting, long-term storable food from eFoods Direct and how a food savings account is your best insurance against natural disasters, job loss, and high food costs. But did you know that this dehydrated food also protects you against foodborne contaminants like E. coli and salmonella? Those poisonous critters can't live in low-moisture food from eFoods Direct. Ask for the Alex Fall Special. The Fall Special is a 24-day supply of food in a convenient portable container. A $259 value for only $199. Save $60 on 160 servings of the best food on the planet. Call 800-409-5633 and ask for the Alex Fall Special and go to eFoodsDirect.com slash Alex. Call 24 hours, 800-409-5633 or eFoodsDirect.com slash Alex. You can bet your life on eFoodsDirect. What's going to happen next? You never know when you're listening to the Tech Night Owl live with Gene Steinberg. We have Bob Carver, audio engineer renowned on the Tech Night Owl live with Gene Steinberg, and he is taking us on a fascinating tour of his history in the field. So he's at Tiffany's in New York. He sees the cube. Remember, this is before we had the Power Mac Cube, before Steve Jobs had the next Cube. This is what, late 70s, early 80s? Let me think. I'm not sure. Um, 1978, that's when it was. Okay, so you saw this thing, and you were looking for something to build a company on, a hot product that could really get this company on the map. That's right. I had to make a comeback. I was, I'd been kicked out of phase linear by the board of directors, and uh, so I... You sound to... like, almost like Steve Jobs when they threw him out of Apple. Hey, listen, it's, it's an oft-repeated tale. I know it. It's an, and an often, oft-repeated story. Okay, yeah. you want to bring out this product. So what did you do with this Cube idea to build an amplifier around it? Well, I saw it at Tiffany's. I was smitten with it. It was beautiful. Uh, and so I said, that's the shape that my next amplifier is going to be. And it's going to be that size. And it was a, it was a clock, a uh, table clock. So I came home and I tried to figure out a way to do it. Uh, it was a long, hard battle. I made many, 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 many wrong turns, may, had many failures, but each failure, in a sense, was the result of an experiment, and those results taught me the way. So I learned by a series of converging experiments to, learn, to build that cube. And it had a, a unique power supply that was about one-tenth the size of a regular power supply, and could deliver more current and more voltage even 
than, than a regular one, even though it was one-tenth the size. And the power output stage was a three-tiered system that was much more efficient. So between the two, the new power supply and the new uh, highly efficient output stage, I was able to get the whole thing in a little tiny cube, and it, was, and it ran cool enough so that I didn't have to even put, I didn't have to put heat sinks on it. This Very sounds cool. what Apple does with their computers. You know, maybe they learned from you, Bob Carver. Okay, so this first amplifier, how much power did it produce? I don't think Steve Jobs learned anything from me, but... Maybe some of his designers did, I, I bet. I do know that Steve Jobs and I, and a futurist, he was a philosopher... We had a three-way roundtable discussion years ago. It was by radio, but it was, it was written up in, I think it was Playboy uh, magazine, and there was a picture of me, Steve, and Isaac Asimov. And we were asked about the future of audio, and the answers we gave were enormously entertaining. We all missed it. Steve and I just totally missed what the future of audio was, but Isaac Asimov, the futurist, got it right. And, of course, that was about 30 years ago. What did he say? We all predicted that audio, the home, and video would be integrated, and it never happened. Is not integrated. The home and audio and video are not yet integrated. They're just starting now, perhaps. So what did Isaac Asimov say? Oh, he said, no way, it's not going to happen. Here's what's going to happen. We are still going to have our homes, have our audio systems. Well, they'll either be portable and we'll carry them around with us, or they'll be standalone in the home, and we'll listen to them and enjoy them, but they will not be integrated into the whole house. We won't have hi-fi sets everywhere in the room, and, it, and the home will not be integrated into the television set. So that, I, I mean, I'm not even sure what it, what it was supposed to look like, but somehow when you rang the doorbell, you'd see somebody who was ringing the doorbell, and you could have a, an audio experience with them. And... I mean, it's possible to do that, but it, it, it's not routine today. Right. Well, the video thing, right now we're having a half video conversation, which is I'm seeing you in your study, in your living room, whatever, <laughs> and you're seeing nothing, which is better. I know better for your eyes because we don't want to frighten you. But <laughs> the point is, though, let's get back to the first amplifier. How much power would it cost? It was 200 watts per channel, and the price was 349 and that was a breakthrough price. Wow, because normally you'd spend quite a bit more for that thing. Well, at that time, yeah, 200 watt amplifiers were about two grand, almost about eight times more expensive. Now, I mean, the, SAE, SAE had one out, Crown had one out, and they were very expensive. Okay, so at this point, now this is, became interesting because it happened later, and that is some of the magazines ragged on you saying, well, it's a trick amplifier with trick circuitry, and these amplifiers don't sound as good as these other amplifiers that cost 10 times as much, and then you had a challenge. And you said, you know what? You show me the amplifier, and I will make my inexpensive amplifier sound the same. That's exactly true. Uh, the mag the, the, Julian Hurst, many of the mag magazines recognized the uh, amplifier as being a, a nice instrument and worthy of the name High Fidelity, and, and it was. Uh, it had low distortion, wide bandwidth, high power, and it worked beautifully. Uh, but some of the magazines that were that catered to very, very expensive amplifiers felt, I think they felt frightened that uh, it, would, it might change the, 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 the scope, I mean, change the way the world viewed an amplifier. So they ragged on it, just as you say, and 
then we had the amplifier challenge, and the amplifier challenge uh, was was my way of saying, "Hey, wait a minute, guys! My amplifier is equal to or better than the most expensive amplifier you can ever come up with." And to prove it, you pick the most expensive amplifier that you want, and I'll make my little amplifier, which is three hundred and forty-nine dollars, sound just as good as your. And it was a it was about five thousand dollars back then. Big tube amp, great sounding tube amp. And so the uh, Amplifier Challenge came into existence. I traveled down to the magazine, which was in Arizona, or New Mexico, it was, and um, did the challenge. It was a blind test. Nobody could know which amplifier was being played. And I modified my amplifier so it would sound like their reference amplifier. The magazine wrote it up honestly. They said, Bob did it. We can't believe that this little amplifier sounds just as good and just the same as this big giant amplifier. And that amplifier challenge story has been reprinted over and over again all throughout the world. I cannot believe to this day that one little magazine article has had such staying power. Now, yeah, it became controversial because when you start building amplifiers based on this prototype, they started objecting. Yeah, but that that didn't go very far. I mean, they said they said, well, Bob, what the problem was is that uh, Gordon Holt, who was the uh, journalist and the author of the story, wrote it up very accurately. The new editors who came in from England, interestingly enough, decided to take that win away from me. They wanted to take the win away because it was not good for business. Well, if you're uh, selling amplifiers for five thousand dollars and you're receiving advertising from companies who sell those products, and there's this crazy guy from the Pacific Northwest who says, I have an amplifier for 349 or whatever that's just as good. That has to hurt something. Well, it, it did. It frightened them. And they didn't need to be frightened because there's, there will always be a high-end market. There will always be a market for expensive amplifiers. They, I don't think they understood that. Uh, Marketing 101 would te- teaches us that, but they didn't believe it. They were frightened. And so they tried to take that win away from me and were really unable to because it was a real win. It wasn't fake. It wasn't phony. It was real, and it was based on real technology and solid science work. So that's where we are today with that. And um, it's just the article itself gets reprinted all the time. I know you did another one with Peter Axel of a magazine called The Audio Critic. Yes. The same kind of test. And, of course, I got to know Peter. Is he still around these days, by the way? He's got to be he, fairly old. Yes, yeah, so he's still, he's still around. Okay. Yeah, he's still there. He's still living. And that was a fascinating yeah. series. And that's, by the way, the Audio Critic magazine. If you go to theaudiocritic.com, you'll see that. And the other magazine that he got involved in, Stereophile, they're still around. Yes. They're Everybody's still, still here, fortunately. Well, hey, Gene, we're all still in the arena. Guess what? If you're an audiophile... You're, we're all in the arena still, so knock on artificial wood. Okay, uh, we're going to knock on wood because critic, we... The audio critic treatment of the, of, uh, the experiment was much more gracious than stereophiles. If you have a comment or question about the Tech Night Owl Live, write us, news at technightowl.com. That's news at technightowl.com. Bob Carver about the great amplifier challenges in which he participated. I'm Gene Steinberg. You're in the Tech Night Owl Live. <laughs> America's number one source for independent talk radio for over a decade. We are 
The GCN Radio Network. Ray Perkins, a reclusive veteran burned out from the Gulf War, lives tortured by relentless, perplexing nightmares. Nightmares of a horrific battle in deep space and of a mysterious woman suffering in agony for her devastated world. A woman not yet born, calling across centuries to him. Then, a coincidence leads him to his destiny, his chance to alter the universe. Attack of the Rockwells. The former fiction editor for Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Robert Simpson, writes, The soul of the novel Attack of the Rockoids lies in its heart and passion for building a convincing tale of a love that spans a galaxy. A thrilling story. Attack of the Rockoids is available now. Read a sample chapter and get a special discount off of the cover price at our website, rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Attack of the Rockwell, a novel in the grand science fiction tradition. Jason Lewis here. We talk daily about all the crazy stuff happening around the world. Concerns with the economy, job loss, and natural disasters, just to name a few. Let me ask you, what are you doing to be prepared? How will you provide for your family in an emergency? Well, for my preparation, I recommend WiseFoodStorage.com. WiseFoodStorage.com offers delicious, ready-made, freeze-dry meals that carry a 25-year shelf life, and you prepare them in minutes by simply adding water. Wise Food Storage entrees are packaged in individual metal mylar pouches then stored in convenient grab-and-go plastic containers for freshness and easy transport go to wisefoodstorage.com today to request a free entree sample and for a limited time enter the promo code lewis to get free shipping on any order call 855 food wise that's 855-366-3947 or visit w-i-s-e foodstorage.com wisefoodstorage.com gourmet emergency food at the best price Can heart and body extract help with other ailments besides heart conditions, high blood pressure, clogged arteries, or unbalanced cholesterol? It did for Karen. I've been using heart and body extract for approximately two weeks. I've had an earwax buildup problem for many years, with over-the-counter stuff not working at all. I had very poor hearing due to this earwax buildup. Well, after two weeks of taking heart and body extract, my earwax buildup almost completely cleared up. Could this be the effect of better body circulation? Heart and Body Extract is an effective 100% organic nutritional supplement specially formulated to allow your body to heal itself. My hearing is almost completely back to normal. I'm amazed. Order by calling 866-295-5305 or online at hbextract.com. That's 866-295-5305 or hbextract.com. Heart and Body Extract for long and healthy life. What happened, man? You used to be energetic, happy, and wow, did the ladies love you. Now, you fall asleep on the couch, irritable, and out of shape. Don't be that guy. Call now for a risk-free trial of Ageless Male, a natural supplement shown to raise testosterone by 50% and maintain healthy, normal levels. No injections, no appointments. With healthy testosterone levels, you can feel that energy again, that great outlook again, and yes, even a healthy sex drive. Right now, you can try Ageless Male risk-free. There's nothing to lose, guys. If you're a man who's noticed changes in your body, your mood, your sex life, call now for a risk-free trial of Ageless Male. Be the guy you used to be. Just call 1-888-246-0623. Don't wait another day. Just call 1-888-246-0623. 
888-246-0623. Again, 1-888-246-0623. You never know what's going to happen next while listening to the Tech Night Isle, live with Gene Steinberg. We have Bob Carver, renowned audio engineer. Of course, he had Phase Linear. He had Carver Corporation. He's had Sunfire. We're back in the Carver stages where he had this legendary series of amplifier bake-offs where basically he takes his cheap amplifier, makes it sound the same as the other amplifier. Now, when you're doing this, you have to bear in mind here is that the dream with high fidelity was a straight wire with gain. But obviously, if two amplifiers sound different, it's not a straight wire anymore. They're, in their own ways, changing the sound slightly, right? Right. Okay, so the tube amplifier tends to change the sound a little bit. Is that part of it? Mm-hmm, that's part of it. Okay, so all you did was take your solid-state amplifier and make it change the sound in the same way. That's right. Okay. Exactly. So at one point, though, you actually built a big, expensive tube amplifier and it was based on your own technology, which cost incredible amounts of money, as I recall. Like it was the most cost expensive of a amplifier car. in the world. Right. What did it cost? It was called the Silver 7, and I believe it was 12000 bucks. Now, this is what? In the mid-1980s, so then you could buy Early, a new yeah, car. 19, I think it was 1982, something like that. It was a long time ago. So you could buy a car for 12000 or buy a Silver 7 amplifier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, you could buy a Chevy for about six. Okay. <laughs> How things have changed. Yes. So today, if you were doing a Silver 7, which was what? Two separate pieces, one for the left channel, one for the right channel, right? There's four separate pieces. Four. A power supply and a power amp for the left and a power supply and a power amp for the right channel. Four okay. separate pieces. Big. Big. Yeah. And then you decide to build an amplifier, a solid-state amplifier with the same transfer function or sound quality. That's right. I built that amplifier, the Silver 7, to use as a reference standard against which I would, des- I would design my solid-state amps and just to make sure they sounded as good and sounded the same because I liked the way the tube amps sounded. What is the magic of tube amps? What are tube amps doing to the sound that some people prefer them? It's very interesting, and the, uh, the reasons are difficult to get your arms around. It has to do with the way a tube amp can listen to the room. When a loudspeaker makes a sound, it sends the sound out to our ears, and it also sends a sound out into the room, which bounces off the walls. That sound comes back to the loudspeaker and vibrates the loudspeaker, and it makes the loudspeaker, uh, turns the loudspeaker into a microphone. It's called the theorem of reciprocity. That loudspeaker makes a little voltage. That voltage then is fed back to the input of the amplifier stage through the feedback loop and, and emerges in addition, additionally, with the primary signal, which is not the, the room. And that sound is delayed. It's uh, modified by the shape of the room, the sound of the room, and it makes the sound much more delicious. Um, so it's the way it's amp- interacting with the speakers in the room. That's exactly right. Transistor right. amplifiers cannot do that at all. And you can do an experiment to, sh- to, to illustrate it. You can take a tube amp and... Uh, hook it up into your room, and then take another set of loudspeakers, just a little loudspeaker, you can hold it in the palm of your hand, and go out into your yard and walk away far enough so you can't hear the speakers in the room, and then have a friend 
come in and yell and sing happy birthday, clap his hands, and you will hear that sound, that, that, that sound of the room, and it'll sound reverberant and echoey. You can hear it in the little speaker you're holding in your hand. And it's also, of course, coming out of the main speaker. The little speaker you're holding in your hand is a test speaker, so you can listen to it independently of the big speaker. You have to give me away from it. And if you do that with a solid state amp, the speaker's dead silent. Nothing. Nothing happens. But, so, of course, you've designed your solid state amps to do the same thing. Yes, to listen to the room, uh, to have the transfer function, the transfer characteristics of a classical tube amp. I did that in the final days of Carver Corporation. I didn't do that at first, uh, but, I, but as, as my, my own sophistication grew as an, as an inventor, I developed that. Okay, so this was part and parcel. Now, ultimately, you left Carver, and then you founded another company called Sunfire. And the big thing about Sunfire, I think, at the beginning, you had another kind of amplifier, high-end amplifier, but also a tiny subwoofer that put out a lot of power for small size. That's right. Right, right, right. And that was the true subwoofer. You always had these fascinating names, you know, like true or your loudspeakers called Amazing, and some people thought that was going too far. Why'd you do it? Well, I wanted to give it a name that, in the case of the Amazing loudspeaker, I wanted it to have a name that we could not utter without aggrandizing it. And so that's why I called it Amazing. Also, I wanted it to stick in people's heads. Uh, Nobody remembers a loudspeaker that's called the RS-140 as well as they'll remember a loudspeaker that's called the Amazing Loudspeaker. Uh, like it or not, it's, it, it's more memorable if it has a nice name. You know, Steve Jobs has to have been listening to you. When he went back to Apple, he simplified all the names. So instead of having the Performer 8650DR, whatever, he called it iMac or something, or exactly. iPhone. So he was it's, listening to you, I think. Exactly. I mean, well, it's... Who knows? Uh, yeah, who knows? <laughs> okay, yeah. so you had to have these spectacular ah. names. Now... I'm one one thousandth of Steve Jobs in in my in my in my industry. <laughs> but there is a Carver Fest, which is kind of like a special gathering of people who bought your products over the years. Okay, so what happened to Carver? Why did Carver go away, the corporation? Well, the the board of directors, same thing. The board of directors wanted to grow the company to be larger than it was. It was big, successful among the largest audio companies in, this, in the country. In fact, it probably was, uh, except for uh, Harmon Carden. That was bigger. But uh, anyway, we were big and successful and profitable, but they wanted it to be more profitable. And their idea was to expand the distribution. In other words, go into all the automobiles selling, like Chuck's Auto Supply, the, the big drug stores, uh, and sell uh, Carver equipment. And I, at the board of directors level, said, hey, you know, that's not, you can't do that. It won't work. And here's why. Marketing 101. They didn't understand that you could not buy a Rolex watch at Bartell Drugstore successfully. And nor nor could uh, Timex sell their watches in high-end jewelry stores. So anyway, they tried it. I objected. They kicked me out. And they failed. And the, their, business, their dealers left them in mass and turned to Sunfire. And so I, I was one, able, one day I could sit down by the telephone and call all my old Carver dealers and say to them, hey, uh, I have this new amplifier design 
and it's better than my old one, and I should know because I designed them both. Would you like to be my dealer and carry my new amplifier line? It's called Sunfire. And they said yes. And so I was able to set up the uh, Sunfire distribution overnight, and it worked fine, and there, was, there I was at Sunfire, and then uh, Carver lost its dealers and lost its way, and finally they sold out. They, they sold it to Pioneer, and Pioneer used it for its name, um, and it's still around, actually. I think they make car speakers now, Carver Corporation. I think they make raw drivers. What a calm down. Okay, so you have Sunfire, and you have a better, better amplifier, we call it, Big Bad, as they say, in the hood. But the thing is, too, that with Sunfire, you tended to cater towards a higher-end clientele, more expensive stuff. Yes, I did, and I did that intentionally. Uh, Carver Corporation was a large company, uh, had 500 employees, and uh, sat on five acres of land and a nice big building, and even had flagpoles in the front. But Carver Corporation, I mean, Sunfire Corporation was going to be just this little tiny company that uh, was going to be an outlet for my hobby. And that's what I made it. And it was very small. I don't even think we had, we had about 40 employees. So one was less than one-tenth the size of Carver Corporation. And we made uh, high-end, not terribly expensive, but way more high-end than the Carver ones. Now, I was out there. It was like a warehouse, pretty much, right? A converted Pardon? warehouse. The place that you built that stuff in Snohomish, Washington, kind of like a converted warehouse, right? Actually, no. It was a brand-new building. I, oh, I, okay. I designed it and built it. Or I didn't build it myself, but I had builders build it. And uh, I, I put front offices in it in an entryway that was pretty and a you know, receptionist. And then, in, and then engin- an engineering group was in there and then the manufacturing group also. Uh, so we had administration, engineering, sales. We had, the, we had everything that a company needs to function, and it was all under one building. It was a nice, nice new building, uh, but it was much smaller than the Carver one. The Carver one, all in all, was 110,000 square feet. This one was only 20,000 square feet, much smaller. So it's a small plant. Did you build everything in-house? Yes, everything okay. was built in-house. So this was still American-made. You didn't go to what so many people do these days, which is build this stuff overseas. And we're going to talk about the state of the audio industry now in the 21st century and more with Bob Carver on the Tech Night Out Live. Are you tired of searching for great talk radio? Something more important. Search no more. We are the GCN Radio Network. Hi, this is Ted Anderson. If you own an Apple iPhone and love to listen to your favorite programs on GCN, I've got good news for you. I'm proud to announce that GCN has a brand new iPhone app available for our dedicated listeners at GCNlive.com. Listen to your favorite hard-hitting GCN programs live or on demand right on your iPhone. And the best part? The GCN iPhone app can be yours absolutely free. Download the iPhone app today by clicking on the banner at GCNlive.com. Again, that's GCNlive.com. We the People grow cotton, weave fabric, engrave ink, embed strips and fibers to protect from counterfeit and carting to a private bank, having it led back at interest, forcing taxes to service debt. This capitalism, or was Jefferson correct when stating a central bank issuing the public currency is a greater menace to the liberties of the people than a standing army? Ted Anderson, I'm placing a free silver dollar in a book that explains our monetary system. Call for your copy, 800-686-2237. It's time to understand the system. Call 800-686-2237. That's 800-686-2237.
Welcome back to the Tech Night All Live, where you never know what's going to happen next. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. With Bob Carver, we're talking about his history in the audio industry as a pioneer, all these great inventions, better sound, and then, of course, how he went from the various companies, and now he had Sunfire. Again, he was concentrating on building small production amounts, all-American, but all these other companies have gone overseas. What happened? Why they do that? Just to keep things cheap? Every manufacturer is faced with competition. And everybody, every manufacturer wants to win over the competition. So they try to build the product with the least possible cost so that they can keep the retail price down, the price that the consumer pays, and be competitive. So everybody goes to China because the labor rate over there is about 25 cents an hour for a factory worker. And here it's, you know, about $16 an hour. It's a lot more expensive here. That's why everybody goes overseas. Sure, but the one thing we've noticed, though, with audio is, do you still have mainstream systems like you did before? It seems like everybody nowadays, if you want to listen to music, you stick a couple of earbuds in your ear, you take out your iPhone, your iPad, or your iPod, and you listen, and you don't have these big systems as many. So what happened? Is it just convenience over quality? And the same thing is with music, of course. Although there's been a comeback of LP records, you digitize everything, it's online, it's easy to get, easy to download, and there you go. Well, Isaac Asimov predicted that. Remember that three-way conversation? Sure, you, Steve Jobs, and Isaac Asimov, right? That's right. He predicted it, and I missed it completely. So did Steve Jobs. And... It's the, uh, the world changes. The world changes. However, not everybody listens with earbuds. A lot of people like to listen to a beautiful two-channel system, the kind you and I love. And once they've experienced it and are exposed to it, many of them become converts, even youngsters. So it's not a, mar- it's not a dead marketplace. What has happened, it's no longer a mass market. They're made, those products are still made in the United States and they're fairly expensive. One, because they're made in the United States, and two, because the parts that, that are used are very quality parts, high-end parts, expensive parts, and the combination of a higher labor rate than in China and the expensive parts makes the products more expensive. However, interestingly enough, they're parts-intensive. The labor is still a small component of the total cost. It's mostly the parts. The opposite is true for inexpensive uh, items like earbuds and things. So, okay, so today, is it possible for somebody who doesn't have a lot of money, and we all see the state of the economy makes it difficult, and he says, you know, I've got $500, I've got $1,000, I've got $1,500, I just spent a wad on my flat panel TV, I really want to have good sound, can they get it? Actually, they can. They, they can for about $1,500. You can buy a tube amp from China, for about for less than a thousand or twelve or, or about eight hundred for a nice one, a little underpowered, nice little tube amp, and a pair of nice speakers, and that and then use your iPod to download the music, and it'll be quite quite nice. It won't be super high end. It won't be a, a big floor stander with an LP, but it will be quite nice and way better than listening to downloaded music strictly through a pair of earbuds. What is the low-resolution digitizing of music. What's that done? Is that taken away a lot of what's on that original recording? At the very low bit rate, it does uh, impact the, the uh, ultimate quality. But at the highest bit rate that's available, even on an iPod, uh, it's fine. It's beautiful. It's perfect. There's no need to worry about it. 
and I have done so many experiments to convince myself of that, and the results uh, are that on the high, highest possible bit rate, which nobody uses because it does it means it won't run very long, but uh, the quality is there. So, for um, example, if I get the 256K AAC file, which is what Apple distributes, I can get pretty good sound out of that with a good should, system? You certainly can. Hook it up to your system and prove it to yourself. Okay. Okay. Now, the other thing about home theater. Now, we have home theater. We have people want 3D TVs. Can we get a decent, affordable home theater sound system? I mean, now they have these things called sound bars. We have this long, <laughs> this long tube or something, rectangular tube, where you stick 50 speakers in there, and that's supposed to sound good, does it? Uh, it's not a high-fidelity system. It's, it's a set of speakers for a TV set. So if you want something, if you want to have some very nice sound, you have to get a separate surround sound system, one with a powerful set of amplifiers, uh, I'm, Sunfire makes those, other people make them, uh, and a nice set of loudspeakers. And they're all available and not very expensive these days. It's all made in China, good work, good quality, sounds, sounds very nice. And it, but it does double the cost, of the, no, more than doubles the cost of the TV set. If the TV set's $1,000, uh, the sound system will be 2000 So it triples the cost of the system. Okay, now what about the situation where you don't have the room for the rear speakers? And I know you were experimenting with this back in the 70s. A lot of the systems now fake surround sound. I mean, they get surround sound content on the Blu-ray DVD or from, for example, your satellite or your cable provider. Is it possible? Are they using ideas that you first invented to create a pseudo surround sound effect? Yes. What they do is they they use the sonic holography technology, and the patents for that have all expired. Um, I developed that a long, long time ago, but those patents have expired, and so it's possible to make two speakers project ventriloquistically sound to the left and to the right and make it appear to come outside of the plane of the loudspeakers. And in its extreme, you can make it go at least to the side and slightly behind your ears, uh, and, and as if it's up against the wall. So it's like a 60 like or 70 percent solution. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which it's is pretty good. Than, I guess that's it's, pretty good. Yeah, it's better than nothing. And these days, though, you haven't given up. I mean, you sold your interest in Sunfire, and now you're building expensive tube amps. Tell us about that. I've always loved tube amplifiers. I've always. The, my first power amplifiers that I ever built were tube amplifiers. The first amplifier I ever saw in a window was a vacuum tube tube amplifier, that Macintosh. Mac 275 with its chrome trans, uh, chrome chassis and, and shiny black transformers. And so I'm building tube amplifiers now, and I'm having a ball. It's fun. It's a hobby. Uh, I, I have made my fame and fortune in the audio business. So um, I, I now, in, in my later years, have an opportunity to pursue a hobby and have a lot of fun. And that's what I'm doing now. Now, you were telling me the other day you sell a lot of these things on eBay. Yes, I'm selling them on eBay. Okay, so if someone wants to get a hold of Bob Carver and learn about the products and about these tube amplifiers, and they're not cheap, folks, but they're just beautiful craftsmanship. I've seen the pictures of them. Where did they get a hold of you? BobCarver.com. So you finally got online. Mm -hmm. You can go see pictures of them on BobCarver.com, at least some of them. Now, you have the two amplifiers, but you're also building a new speaker system with that? Mm -hmm. That's right. Listen, Gene, I could not stop building amplifiers even if I wanted to. 
nor could I stop building loudspeakers, even if I wanted to. I learned that the hard way. I feel funny if I'm not building an amplifier. So 20 uh, years from now, and you and I are fairly close in age, so 20 years from now, we'll be a couple of old codgers, and you'll be telling me about your next great amplifier system or about some kind of loudspeaker that exceeds everything ever built. Gene, you should see my new loudspeaker. My new amplifier, it's only the size of a postage stamp, and I can put it next to my iPod, and I have some woofers in my iPad, and it makes lots of bass, like the true subwoofer. That's what we'll be talking about 20 years from now. And hopefully people will be interested. They'll be interested in live music all over again and -hmm. reproducing the sound of live music because that's what makes it so special. I hope so. So, I hope so. I'm counting on it. What do you want people to remember when they hear the name Bob Carver? Boy. I'm starting to sound like 60 minutes here. I don't know. I don't know. Just, just, I don't know. Just think of music. Think of music. That's what I'd like people to do when they hear Bob Carver. I would like them, if the name comes up and they're in the middle of their daily lives, I want them, I want the heavens to open up, the stars to come out, and beautiful music to waft over them and give them peace and tranquility and happiness in their minds. What a way to end this. The place, again, his new company is bobcarver.com, and you can check out these tube amplifiers. And if you make a little bit of benefit from selling your Apple stock, you know, maybe you bought it at $13, it's now up to $400, you can use some of that money to buy one of those amps. If you have a comment or question about the Tech Night Owl Live, write us, news at technightowl.com. That's news at technightowl.com. We'll read each and every message. Bob Carver, what an entertaining session. Thanks, my friend, for joining us on the Tech Night Owl Live. Great. So here's what happened. I was placing an order online. The site went down. It just stopped responding. It took hours before it returned, but I'd already placed the order with another company. If your site goes down, you could lose business. And if you have a business or personal site, you'll want to know it's easy to run and it will stay online. At iWeb, your site is hosted on one of the most reliable networks in the world. Check it out. iWeb.com. That's iWeb.com. You expect professional service from your doctor, your accountant, and even the girl who takes your morning coffee order. Why not from your domain registrar, too? Namecheap.com provides stellar service with no sneaky upselling. We offer more features and security options for your website than there are ways to order a latte. And new domains come with WhoisGuard to protect your personal info. At Namecheap.com, you can get your domain for as low as $2.99. Now is a great time to get to know Namecheap.com. Are you wondering about your retirement portfolio? Are you confident that the financial advisor is experienced enough to combat climbing interest rates, taxes, and inflation? Stop guessing and go to the expert, Robert Chapman of the International Forecaster. When you subscribe to the International Forecaster, you get Robert Chapman's 45 years of experience and concise investment recommendations. Who needs sugar-coated excuses when you can get the cold hard facts and proven investment leads you can't get anywhere else? For a free introductory copy to Robert Chapman's International Forecaster, Subscribe now at theinternationalforecaster.com or call 877-479-8178. Experience the difference. When you subscribe, you can email Robert Chapman directly to obtain investment advice tailored just for you. Don't wait another minute. Subscribe today at theinternationalforecaster.com or call 877-479-8178. That's 877-479-8178.
smokers. Are you still smoking traditional cigarettes? Are you still smelling up your clothes and car interior, staining your teeth, and getting ashes everywhere? Why? When you can be smoking or vaping with e-cigarettes by LaSig. With LaSig e-cigarettes revolutionary microelectronic technology, rechargeable battery, and unique replacement cartridges, you'll get all the satisfaction of smoking, but no smoking hazards. Choose from a wide variety of our new American-made Vapriate e-liquid flavors at LaSig.com, spelled L-E-C-I-G.com, or call 870-518-4307. That's 870-518-4307. LaSig e-cigarettes for today's modern smoker. Warning, e-cigs may contain nicotine, an addictive substance known to the state of California to cause birth defects or cancer. Please be aware of the risks associated with e-cigs prior to use. You must be 18 years or older to purchase. You can bet your life on eFoods Direct. Alex has told you about the amazing, great-tasting, long-term storable food from eFoods Direct and how a food savings account is your best insurance against natural disasters, job loss, and high food costs. But did you know that this dehydrated food also protects you against foodborne contaminants like E. coli and salmonella? Those poisonous critters can't live in low-moisture food from eFoods Direct. Ask for the Alex Fall Special. The Fall Special is a 24 four-day supply of food in a convenient portable container. A $259 value for only $199. Save $60 on 160 servings of the best food on the planet. Call 800-409-5633 and ask for the Alex Fall Special and go to eFoodsDirect.com slash Alex. Call 24 hours, 800-409-5633 or eFoodsDirect.com slash Alex. You can bet your life on eFoodsDirect. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Tech Night Owl Live, send it to news at technightowl.com. That's news at technightowl.com. And don't forget, you can visit the famous Tech Night Owl community forums at forum.technightowl.com. Get in on all the action. That's forum.technightowl.com. From Macworld Magazine, the one, the only Lex Friedman, and like millions of other people right now he has had this thick hardcover book with over 600 pages or tell me that actually what you're going to do is you're going to be listening to the audiobook version what no, is it I, in fact i i felt guilty about it but i bought it from amazon for the kindle and i read it between my kindle iphone and ipad okay i felt a little guilty since you know i didn't buy the ibooks version but the ibooks version i couldn't actually use the hardware kindle and i like reading on the hardware kindle sometime but i did read it all i read all 650 whatever pages by uh by tuesday night because i had to be ready for a, a Macworld podcast where we talked about the book okay so what do you think you knew you learned about steve jobs that hasn't already been disclosed in unofficial biographies in all the leaks from this biography well, I'll say this. You know, I don't think anybody going into the book who's read or heard anything about Steve Jobs ever will be stunned or shocked or surprised by any of the revelations within the book. Yeah, I think it's a great book. I think it's very interesting and it provides a lot of insight. But again, there's there's no big surprise here. And there's also, you know, no sudden and deep explanation of why Steve Jobs was the way he was. That said, I will admit that uh, you know, upon finishing the book, I did feel like I liked him a little bit less than I had prior. I still have tremendous respect for him. I still think it's great that he lived, and I wouldn't have the job I have today had he not done all the things that he had done. Uh, were he alive, I'd still want to get a beer with him. But, 
you know, it's, it seems like on reading the book, one of my takeaways was that uh, a lot of the time, some of his, you know, brusque manner, his, his tough manner with various people who worked for him, with him or near him, uh, was meaner than it had to be. I, I mean, I never thought that he was, you know, a super nice boss to work with. And I knew that he had a, a rough and challenging personality, but it, it seemed, uh, not accidental, but rather a, a sort of choice that he made specifically trying to be mean when he could be when he felt it was necessary uh, with with real intention to hurt and that's one part of his personality that i'm comfortable admitting now you know i didn't like getting a deeper look at that part he sounded like a rather troubled person really yeah i mean it's it seems clear from reading the book that he had you know eating disorders probably some kind of you know i wouldn't want to psychoanalyze him having never even met him but some kind of psychological challenges going on there as well and yes clearly clearly some some problems there so maybe he is the mad genius personified. Right. You hear a lot of famous people or even, you know, artists being described this way. You know, you hear, you know, about some famous painter, let's say. Is, uh, Jason Snell actually made this point to me earlier this week, Ma- uh, Macworld's editorial director. He was saying, uh, you know, that many times you'll hear of artists that they're described as, you know, being very difficult to work with or throwing tantrums or childlike, uh, all of which are used in the book to describe Steve Jobs, uh, but that people tolerate it because the incredible, you know, paintings they could create. And I think it's the same with Steve. You know, he, he was childlike. He was prone to tantrums and we tolerated it because he gave us great, great stuff. So you tolerate the good, the bad. And it sounds to me like he did some of that as a pose where he's challenging somebody playing the devil's advocate role strictly to get them to be more creative that's right and you know it's, a way of browbeating somebody it's an interesting point that the author walter isaacson makes too in his own conclusions you know he writes that i don't have the book in front of me at this moment but he writes you know that steve probably could have you know been nicer that he didn't have to be quite as mean as he was much of the time but at the same time he got results you know there were some of the people he was harshest to say you know he wanted me to do something impossible and i said it couldn't be done and he yelled and screamed at me and then i was amazed at what i was able to do after his having yelled and screamed at me so it's it's understandable to me that he kept it up because it kept working for him throughout his entire career he found a shtick and it worked exactly right you know it's how do you browbeat employee do you beg them do you plead or do you call them a bunch of morons saying well you want to work here you're a jerk you can't get this job done right you show me i'm wrong and they'll either walk out the door or they'll produce exactly you look at it and there are clearly people who who loved working for him i think especially his executive team you know to a one in the book when they're quoted they talk about him in in generally positive terms you know the in the book jobs describes himself really as dividing the world the world into two kinds of people and we'll use the cleanest words that he used for them you know he said that there were you know geniuses who were oftentimes artists and then he had bozos those are like i said the the nicest words he used for those two groups but he he pretty much filed everybody he encountered into one of those two groups so if you weren't a genius in steve's view then you were a bozo i imagine that made it very challenging to work with them because if it's somebody you work with and you know i'm guessing most of the people who'd go to work for apple or pixar would go there because they loved the man and loved the stuff that he did and if you ended up in the bozo camp uh that couldn't have been fun (laughs) No, indeed. You don't want to be a bozo. You don't want to work that way. And even Bill Gates was quoted in the book as saying that Steve Jobs had some personality issues. Right. And that's, you know, especially... Maybe he's just saying gently, this guy is wacky. Right. You know, whatever you want to say, he's a mad genius. Whatever you want to say, he is wacky. And I, I think it's it's undeniable. 
It's, he clearly was wacky. Many of the life choices he made were wacky. I don't think that detracts in any way really from the products he created. I, honestly, I wouldn't presume to make choices for anybody else or to, to second guess someone's personal choices for themselves. But had I been in his position, which is hard enough to fathom, I would have treated his battle with pancreatic cancer very differently. The book talks about how, you know, he got this diagnosis where he had this great news that, you know, of all the cancers you can have, he had the, the 1% of pancreatic cases, pancreatic cancer cases, where it's very treatable and they caught it early because they caught it by accident. They're ready to get it and they say, this is, you know, we can do the surgery now and this is a very slow spreading cancer. It's early. We'll catch it and you'll be healed. And Job said, no, let's not do that yet. I'm going to try to do some, you know, holistic healing methods. I'm going to try to change my diet and see if that works. And that's, as I think most people know, that's not how you treat cancer. And I'll give you one example of this. You know, I kind of took this personally because my mother-in-law died of pancreatic cancer, but she had the more virulent kind. So she was diagnosed within weeks she's gone, okay? Now, maybe if she caught it earlier, well, this was the mid-1980s. And what makes it sadder is my brother, my late brother, used to work in the healthcare industry. And he knew of a test program to try out some new remedies for pancreatic cancer. He pulled a few levers. He got her into the program. We had the ambulance booked the day before she died. Understood. So I understand All right. Even then, nobody knows whether those nine months between the time he was first diagnosed and the time that he had his surgery, whether it got so bad that he couldn't have been saved anyway. You know, even if they catch it, you know, the prognosis for pancreatic cancer, even the rare kind he had, is only a few years. Exactly right. So he may have still been here no longer had he been operated on earlier. Very true. It's, I mean, but you look at, you know, that sort of decision, though, that he made where he said, you know, where he said, I'm going to wait these nine months and see if I can kick this on my own. And that's, I think, very in keeping with this, you know, the history that he had is sort of self-medication was uh, a characteristic of his life, you know, where he he took his uh, sabbatical early on in his youth, where he went to India for a while. He self-medicated with various legal and illegal drugs. And, you know, he did a lot of personal experimentation and he lived the life that you know that he wanted to live and you know it's i like i said i can't fault him for that but it's it's not the choice that i would have made in his position it's all about choices and we're talking about the choices of steve jobs the authorized biography steve jobs by walter isaacson from cnn and time magazine we have lex friedman he's from Macworld magazine you're listening to the tech night out live The GCN Radio Network, providing the world with hard-hitting talk radio. GCN. Great talk radio starts here. Ray Perkins, a reclusive veteran burned out from the Gulf War, lives tortured by relentless, perplexing nightmares. Nightmares of a horrific battle in deep space and of a mysterious woman suffering in agony for her devastated world. A woman not yet born, calling across centuries to him. Then, a coincidence leads him to his destiny, his chance to alter the universe. Attack Attack. of the Rockoids. The former fiction editor for Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Robert Simpson, writes, The soul of the novel Attack of the Rockoids lies in its heart and passion for building a convincing tale of a love that spans a galaxy. A thrilling story. Attack Attack. of the Rockoids is available now. Read a sample chapter and get a special discount off of the cover price at our website, rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Attack, attack. 
of the Rockwoods, a novel in the grand science fiction tradition. Local Army-Navy surplus stores are hard to find these days, but not military-issue supplies. They're right here online at MainMilitary.com. That's right, just like the state, M-A-I-N-E, Military.com. We have everything for true, total preparedness. MainMilitary.com is not a typical website. It has much more than your old surplus store. Quality military-issue survival gear like canteens, mess kits, utensils, gas masks, filters, and chemical suits. Magnesium fire-starting tools, strike anywhere, waterproof, and storm matches. First aid kits, splints, tourniquets, parachute 550 cord, military manuals, sandbags by the bale, and a huge molly assortment of vests and pouches for every need. Call 207-989-6783, 207-989-6783, or visit MainMilitary.com. That's M-A-I-N-E, Military.com, the main name in military supply. Did you know nuclear radiation is still spewing out of the melted-down reactors in Fukushima, Japan, and making its way across the entire U.S. continent, contaminating the air, water, and food? Dangerously high levels of radiation are a reality here. As a result, radiation poisoning is a distinct possibility for anyone living in the U.S., unless you do something to protect yourself. How? With Liquid Zeolite from RestoreYourHealthNow.com. Without a doubt, Liquid Zeolite is by far the best product to remove radiation from your body. It safely removes toxins and heavy metals, boosts energy levels, and promotes a strong immune system. Liquid Zeolite is so powerful it was used to clean up contamination in Chernobyl, yet so gentle you won't even know you're taking it. Liquid Zeolite comes with a money-back guarantee, but is only available at RestoreYourHealthNow.com. Learn how to get free bottles of Liquid Zeolite by calling 800-880-9976. That's 800-880-9976. Or go to RestoreYourHealthNow.com. That's RestoreYourHealthNow.com. If you owe the IRS money you can't pay, then listen carefully because you already know that the problem won't go away by itself. You can get help today from the leading tax expert in the country, Dan Pilla. Hi, I'm Dan Pilla. The IRS isn't going to just forget about you. Right now, the IRS is hiring thousands of tax collectors to go after delinquent accounts just like yours. That's why you need to take action today and I can help. I take a simple but proven approach to solving your tax debt problem. First, I stabilize collections so you don't have to worry about wage and bank levies. Next, I build a detailed plan to get your debt reduced to the fullest extent possible, sometimes even eliminated. Finally, I work with you every step of the way to get your problem solved once and for all. So call now for a free consultation. Call 1-800-346-6829. Dan Pilla will solve your tax problem guaranteed. He's helped thousands of people and he can help you too. Call us today at 800-346-6829. That's 800-34-NO-TAX. You're listening to the Tech Night Owl Live with Gene Steinberg. You never know what's going to happen next. We have Lex Friedman from Macworld Magazine talking about... Steve Jobs, the biography from Walter Isaacson, which, you know, millions of people are buying this book. And we can understand it's a, got a lot of information. I gather from the parts I've read, and I haven't read it all, that it's rather an uncomfortable read. You're looking at a person here, you're seeing them bare, literally emotionally naked. And also he was a very emotional person. That's Not right. Just, I mean, he'd get sad 
as much as he get angry and scream at people, he gets sad. Too. Yeah, the the book makes frequent references, and he, you know, Job says it of himself to to the numerous times in his career that he cried. You know, he, I think that it's it's the same gene, if you'll pardon that gene. You know, it's the same gene that made him uh, so easy to so quick to show his anger and you know to have no filter. There it was the same one that let him cry publicly. You know, in board meetings, in meetings with other coworkers or folks from other companies. You know, he simply had no emotional barrier, and if he felt something, he showed it whether it was anger or tears or something else. Basically, from mind to mouth, there was no off switch. Right, a direct funnel. That's right. And speaking of off switches, this curious comment there, he didn't like off switches on the Mac and on Apple gear. I mean, you want to turn off any Apple product, there's always a few steps involved. It's not just push the button, it's off. And you look also at his viewpoints about life and death. Is death an off switch? Or do we go somewhere else? So maybe metaphorically speaking, he's trying to put off the end of his life by not having an off switch on his gear. You know, Isaacson refers to that section of the book as the coda. You know, it's right at the end of the book. You know, you can read, I think, and we weren't there. Only Isaacson was there with Steve for that conversation. But you can read that and say, read it one of two ways. Either... Steve is saying, you know, Steve says, you know, I'm about 50-50 on believing in God and, you know, expresses this thought, this wish that, you know, you don't want all of your wisdom and the knowledge that you've accumulated over your life to simply go away when you die. And he says, you know, maybe it is like an on-off switch and maybe that's why I never like to put an on-off switch on Apple devices. You can read that as his being entirely sincere or as his, you know, making a lighthearted joke there. And I think that it's equally moving Either way, you know, moving in different ways. But I, I like that. I like that point a lot, and I thought it was a nice way for Isaacson to end the book. Now, there's also another part of the book where it mentions that even though he and Johnny Ive were so close, despite that fact, it looks like you know he take the credit for stuff that Johnny did. Yes, maybe Johnny wasn't happy. And it's interesting because, you know, you have Johnny there talking about uh, Steve in very, very positive ways. But you do have him saying, you know, there were times that he felt like Steve took credit for his work and he didn't like it. And he talks about how there were times where he wished that, um, you know, that Steve himself could behave differently, could behave better, I guess he could say. But, I mean, it's obvious because Steve says so directly in the book that uh, Jobs had incredible uh, affection for and confidence in and respect for uh, Johnny Ive. You know, he talks about Johnny's being, you know, nobody could, the only person that I've had a report to at Apple was Jobs and that nobody had more power at Apple than, than Johnny Ive did. So it's interesting that even the people, people who say in the book, you know, that they love Steve and Steve basically saying that he loves them right back, even they can, you know, find fault with him. That actually is further exemplified by uh, Steve's wife, Laureen, who Isaacson repeatedly in the book makes reference to Laureen saying, you know, to Isaacson, I want you to write everything about Steve. I want you to show the good stuff and the bad stuff. I want you to show his full personality because he's done great things, but he is a flawed man, and I want the book to represent that. I I won't psychoanalyze her and why that was her, you know, directive to him, but I found that very interesting. Really, the book does that. I mean, the book is, like you said earlier, it's, it's not an easy read. It's uncomfortable. And, you know, I think we're all human, certainly, and, you know, we all have flaws. I think his flaws are flawier than many of our flaws, but his accomplishments are, you know, better than many of our accomplishments, too. Because he was able to take that handicap, those flaws, and turn them, focus them into something that was productive. Now, we also have to look at Apple. 
now that Jobs is gone, that these people he hired in his image, people he can get along with, people he was in sync with, certainly I, for example. Now, he's going to get the credit for everything, you know, that he designs. Supposedly, also, they have several years of new products that Apple will be producing with the team that's there now. And we will have to see how that changes. Now, one mistake I hope they don't make is not to repeat the mistake of Walt Disney. Because the people, Walt Disney's successors after he died, would think, what would Walt do? Right. And Steve Jobs doesn't want people to say, what will Steve do? It is, okay, we have this company. We have to decide where it's going to go next. It's in our hands. Yes. No, and I think that's exactly right. And, you know, he, you said it just right. You know, he doesn't want them to say, what would Steve do? He just, but uh, I feel like, and Steve makes this point too in the book, that there's this institutional knowledge, and they have Apple University now that was one, an important objective for Steve before he died, where, you know, top executives and, and lower level employees all go through this, you know, this Apple University now to learn the, the Apple way, which is really, you know, mostly the Steve Jobs way. And I think that he feels that I, I've, I've, I feel confident that Steve Jobs died comfortable that, uh, the Apple executive team and the Apple institutional culture he wanted to have had learned those lessons. We'll continue to do things in that Apple way without second-guessing themselves all the time and saying, you know, what would Steve do? I think it's clear that one of the things that Steve did that they'll have to do as well is, you know, be definitive, make decisions that you're confident in and, and comfortable with and proud of and um, hope for the best. So I, I, I feel very back. confident. Right. I feel very confident in Apple's future. Steve Jobs never looked back. I mean – you never had celebrations of the 25th anniversary of the Mac or any of this stuff. You know, never thought of what we did, always looked ahead. Right. So that was it. I feel like some of the, you know, the amount of looking back that we've all been doing at his life it would just bother him to no end now. He'd say, why are we bothering to mourn me? Let's just move forward and do more great things. Well, also, coming away from this, I'm going to ask you one question, and then we'll go into some of the stuff that maybe Apple will be producing, at least one item. And that is, did you ever meet Steve Jobs? I never did. Okay. I did a couple of times briefly. And he's every bit the person you see in that book. That's all I'm going to say about it. <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny. You know, as I said, you know, I'd, I'd be willing to get a beer with him. But uh, I know plenty of folks at, you know, from Macworld who said, you know, if they had the chance, they wouldn't have. <laughs> and, you know, uh, you know, Jason Snelligan said uh, earlier this week, you know, at Apple events, he'd be there. He'd be in, you know, the within feet of jobs. And Jason would specifically take pains to move away, to move to another part of the room. He loved, the, he loved Steve Jobs, the, the product inventor the product creator and he loved the stuff that came out of apple but he did not want to have direct one-on-one human interactions with steve because he didn't think steve wanted to have him with it he didn't want to be (laughs) he didn't want to be bozoed he didn't want to be bozoed well you know i asked him a couple of questions and he had this habit if he didn't want to talk to you he would answer the question as he walked away as fast as he could (laughs) and that was his way of sort of getting away from me and that's cool you know all right you know, I tried. I talked to him. I mean, if you talk to other Apple executives, and I've talked to Jonathan Ive on the phone. I interviewed him early on. And I've obviously talked to Phil Schiller and other Apple executives over the years. And they're friendly, personable. Obviously, they toe the corporate line. What do you expect? But you could talk to them and have a conversation. Steve, you never know what he's going to do. Right. And I didn't say I knew him. You know, I'm just saying, you know, I mean, I met politicians, too. I met famous politicians as a newsman where I'd interview people. 
I'd ask them a couple of questions, and they'd go away. Right. And it's, it's hard to know with a lot of Steve's personality. It may be even impossible to know how much of it is because, you know, at, at, you know, because he was now a rich and successful CEO and was used to getting his way. Really, you know, the book describes his childhood and his, his, you know, his adoptive parents being very accommodating. Uh, you know, any wish that Steve had, they would, you know, deal with and, and handle as he wished them to do so. Uh, the question is, did they do that then? because they could already tell he was special or is it because they did that, that he became the way that he was. So did they know. also indulge him, you know, because here's somebody who maybe is in a more sensitive position because he's adopted. So they indulge his eccentricities. Who knows? We right. have Lex Friedman. We know he's from Macworld magazine and I'm Gene Steinberg. You're in the tech night out live. America's number one source for independent talk radio for over a decade. We are the GCN Radio Network. Graphic Converter is the image manipulation tool for the rest of us. It does not use any database. You get full control of all your files. Want to view the images of a folder? Drag it into Graphic Converter, and a powerful browser opens up to show your image files. You could use it for slideshows. You could use it to import images from digital cameras or from scanners. Need to do some image editing? You can do that, too, in Graphic Converter. Also, print catalogs convert from so many formats i can't even list them download now to see if graphic converter is good for you like one and a half million other users guess what you could save money when you buy graphic converter use the coupon code night owl use the coupon code night owl to get a special price for graphic converter go to lemkesoft.com that's l-e-m-k-e soft.com lemkesoft.com l-e-m-k-e soft.com Are you tired of spending money for metal canning lids year after year? Then stop! Stop buying metal lids and get Tatler reusable canning lids. Made of USDA and FDA-approved food-grade plastic, Tatler canning lids let you safely store emergency preparedness foods for years. Traditional metal lids are single-use throwaways that contain BPA, but Tatler canning lids are indefinitely reusable and guaranteed to last a lifetime when used as designed for home canning and contain no BPA. Tatler lids are dishwasher safe, perfect for standard pressure or water bath canning, eliminate food spoilage from acid corrosion, fit standard mason jars and are proudly made in the USA. Place orders by phone at 877-747-2793 or go to reusablecanninglids.com. That's 1-877-747-2793 or go to reusablecanninglids.com. That's reusablecanninglids.com. Tatler Reusable Canning Lids, the original since 1976. If the government is busy secretly stockpiling emergency food supplies, shouldn't you be too? In any emergency food situation, when the local grocery stores and your kitchen cabinets are empty, the first 72 hours are critical to you and your family. With the 72-hour emergency meal kit from Solutions from Science, you will be prepared for the troubled times ahead. These flavorful and filling 12 prepackaged meals come in a variety of dishes, have a 25-year shelf life, and simply require water to make them ready to eat. Are the 
cans of soup, an extra jar of peanut butter going to see you through. The 72-hour emergency meal kit is now on sale for $39.97. A small investment for tremendous peace of mind. You can find out more about the 72-hour emergency meal kit and the sale by visiting 72survival.com. That's 72survival.com. Or call 800-208-9491. That's 800-208-9491. Why face the next emergency on an empty stomach? For centuries, silver has been used as a powerful natural antibiotic. And as a listener to this station, you probably already know the benefits of using colloidal silver. With so many websites to choose from, finding a reputable patriotic company with great products at affordable prices can be a difficult task. Introducing UtopiaSilver.com. UtopiaSilver.com carries the best, most effective, and most affordable colloidal silver and colloidal gold products in the industry. UtopiaSilver.com also carries products to fit your lifestyle, including weight loss, immune system defense, cleanses, herbs, joint and bone care, and much more. First-time customers using promo code GCN50 will receive 50% off all colloidal products. Visit us today at Utopia Silver. That's U-T-O-P-I-A Silver. UtopiaSilver.com or call 888-213-4338. That's 888-213-4338. UtopiaSilver.com. Taking back America's health care one American at a time. You're listening to the Tech Night Owl Live with Gene Steinberg. You never know what's going to happen next. One more segment with Lex Friedman of Macworld Magazine. I'm Gene Steinberg. You're in the Tech Night Owl Live. Been a pretty fascinating show. We talked earlier on about the evolution of audio from the mind and heart of audio engineer Bob Carver. Before that, Kirk McElhern on 10 Years of the iPod. We've talked about the book Steve Jobs by Walter Isaacson, an amazing bestseller. By the way, Lex, there is an audiobook version, audible.com, 25 hours. Wow. Someone reads it. I've done audiobooks, you know, way back when, when I was a young radio broadcaster rather than an aging one. All right, now let's talk about the mystery of the living room, Apple TV. So Steve Jobs says to Walter Isaacson, I've cracked it. What does he mean? Does he mean that Apple is going to build a TV set or they're going to do something with Apple TV to make it better integrate in the living room? The mystery. Well, it's, you know, it's a great question and it's worth talking about. I read it as Steve saying, you know, he did figure out how to make an actual Apple-branded television, a television set. Uh, and I, I can even tell you what I think he means. But first, I want to take one step back and say, even if he did feel like he cracked it, even if it's a product that Apple talked about, that he you know expressed some views on internally, that still doesn't mean we're, we'll ever see it. I think that Apple probably has numerous products that they've come up with that never see the light of day because eventually it's decided that it wouldn't make sense. But should we see it? Should Apple one day release you know an actual television, not just the set-top box Apple TV that's out there today? I think that it would the way that you crack it is more of a content play. It's less about the features. I think we can all imagine, you know, how smooth the operating system, if you will, on an Apple branded television would work and, you know, how elegant the device would be and probably how few buttons it would be and how understated 
the remote would be. It would work with an iPad and an iPhone and all that. But I think the way you really crack it to get that Apple Edge is on the content side. It's how do you get away from all the cruft of the current television watching experience. You know, how do you get away from having to saddle up to one of very few cable companies that want to either give you fewer channels that are useful or make you pay for way more channels than you want? And how do you get away from even needing a DVR or to worry about the programming schedules? It's how do you watch the shows you want to watch when you want to watch them? I think if Apple today could let the iTunes store, you know, sell you TV shows and movies right after they aired for cheaper than they do now or rent them to you and start streaming them, you know, even more quickly than they could, they do it. But I think many of the limitations today come from the studio side, the content provider side, and not from Apple's side. Also, the question is, does Apple become another equivalent of a cable or satellite provider? It doesn't matter how they bundle the channels. Maybe it's a la carte, whatever. But you have the 300 channels, that Dish Network or DirecTV or Cox or Comcast or Warner Cable. They all offer subsets or complete sets of this basic group of 300 channels. So you still want to watch them. You would still need a separate device to watch them. So does Apple make that kind of agreement? You see, that's where you have the problem. This is where, you you know, it's not just giving you the movies or some of your favorite TV shows. I want to watch the news, the cable news networks. We're not going to mention which one. How do you do it? Does Apple make that work? Can Apple replace the cable or satellite provider completely. And the only way to do that is to have live television. And I think one way to look at it, to answer that question of can Apple do it, is to look at some of the closest possible competitors. And these are folks who don't make the TVs, but who make the right services. And I think they are, the people to look at are, are Netflix and Hulu. Netflix is making it easier and easier for Apple to start owning the entertainment in the home because Netflix keeps flailing worse and worse. And the but, other thing, of course, is that Netflix only offers a small number of movies, decent movies, most of garbage on their streaming service. Hulu is offering TV shows. But there are still things, we're not just talking about pre-recorded TV shows, whether it's live or reality. We're talking about live events. We're talking about the same channels that you get now because we're used to watching those things. And And otherwise, you have to still have the set-top box. Well, when you look right now, there are folks who, you know, many channels, CNN, for example, you know, streams its news live. You know, you can get the live television right from their website. There are numerous channels that do that for breaking news or or other sort of live stuff. I can't imagine that Apple's going to be able to say, you know, we're going to offer live streaming current what's on the air right now of, a say, a sporting event like the NFL, which is so protective, unless... And until those companies are willing to make the deals, right? Apple can't work around the NFL and say, we're going to stream it somehow. And Apple's not going to be able to, you know, run their own cable TV lines to everyone's home. And I don't no, think they make the same deal. Either. They have to make the same deal. They can do it by iCloud. They can do it by streaming whatever way they provide the content. They still have to provide the deals with the content providers. They have to make those contracts. It's not just to get the movies. It's not just to get maybe series TV, it's the whole package. I mean, obviously, Apple TV has, what, they have some sporting events, NFL? Right, they get games after the fact, and, you know, the, the Apple TV has the MLB channel, and they get the, uh, now there's a new NHL channel. Um, but it's, it's, it's all, you know, with the exception, I think, of the, you know, with the NFL stuff, it's all after the game is over. 
but uh, I mean, I think it'll be interesting to see. To me, it's very hard for me to imagine Apple doing, getting into the true, we're going to make deals with these networks or these content providers to recreate the broadcast experience. I think they want to replace it and not just merely recreate it. Well, you then have to say, what is wrong with the broadcast experience? And then how do you deliver the content that people are accustomed to having? Right. And I don't know how they're going to do it. If I knew how they're going to do it, you know, I would start my own business right now. Now, the rumors say that Apple software VP Jeff Robin is involved in the software side of the venture. Now, Jeff Robin, I don't know if you know him. I know him from the days that he was an independent developer. Between his two stints at Apple, had Conflict Catcher. He developed Sound Jam, which was sure. bought by Apple and became iTunes. And, of course, he did the software development for the iPod. He's a cool guy. He's a very interesting guy. And one time when Time Magazine was interviewing Steve Jobs, he introduced Jeff, but wouldn't say his last name. Right. Jeffrey Robin, ladies and gentlemen, because he thought that maybe they would try to poach him other companies because he was so valuable to Apple. Isn't that interesting? Definitely. I mean, it certainly, if Apple does it, I think it will be, I think the hardware and software will be great. The question to me is what deals can they strike? To date, I haven't been impressed. Well, I haven't been overly impressed with Apple's iTunes offerings. You know, they, and I, I don't think it's Apple's fault again. You know, you look at Hulu Plus, and that's a pretty, they have right now some decent contracts. You know, if you pay the $10 a month or whatever it is to Hulu Plus, you get shows, current season shows, the day after they air. So that means I don't have to worry about setting my DVR. I don't have to worry about knowing when shows are on. The day after they air, I can be, stay up to date and current on shows that are on the air right now. Apple doesn't quite have that speed some of the time, and you know, they, they have to strike individual deals with different studios and different networks. If they can crack that piece of it and get everybody on board, and I, you know, there's, <laughs> there's prior art here. Apple has some precedent of being able to do that with the music studios. If they can get the TV studios to stop being, and the, the movie studios, I guess, to stop being so cautious uh, and so afraid of embracing what's obviously going to be the next big frontier for television, um, I think it there's no doubt in my mind that it will be a, a bigger success than the current set-top Apple TV. Now, the other thing is here, as far as an Apple TV is concerned, the actual Apple-connected TV, whatever it is. The other question I voice, which maybe doesn't make sense to you, but it does to me, will it be LCD or plasma? Apple has relationships with LCD panels, of course, because they use so many. But plasma is technologically a better format for better blacks, richer blacks, better viewing angle, all that kind of thing. More like the original CRT TVs, except that it uses more power, and Apple is very conscious about the environment. So that's the other question. Also, what will it cost? I mean, Bose has a TV set with built-in elaborate speaker system. It's $5,500, $5,400, something like that. Very expensive for Apple to succeed, the price is going to have to be reasonably competitive with what's there now. Also, what will they do about 3D? Will they try to invent a 3D method that doesn't require those foolish glasses? Lex Friedman, where do we find I, more of the things you do? You can find me at uh, mackerel.com, of course, or at uh, lexfriedman.com. And this is a question we're going to leave open for the next time. You can Perfect. find more of the things I do at technightowl.com. We're also technightowl on Twitter. Follow us, neighbors. Maybe we'll follow you, or maybe not. Depends on my mood of the day, but I'm not a Steve Jobs when it comes to moods. We also have another radio show about UFOs and things that go bump in the night called The Paracast. 
at Paracast.com. That's Paracast.com. Special thank you to Lex Friedman for joining us this week on the Tech Night Owl Live. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. The Tech Night Owl Live is a copyrighted presentation of Making the Impossible Incorporated. We'll be back next week. Same bad time, same bad channel.